Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck with me, Alex Guns. Hello. We have a spooky episode for you today in light of uh, the upcoming Hall- Halloween, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, I, I, I like to call it one of my favorite holidays, but I never like to do anything for it, really, as far as like preparation goes. Yeah, I like that it is happening. I was walking to work the other day and I was walking past... Um, the some of the nicest uh townhouses in uh manhattan on fifth avenue and between fifth and madison on 81st street and they had decked out their like 20 million dollar uh house with like cobwebs and stuff like that and these like two middle-aged women are outside that one of them clearly owns it and one turned it while i was walking past one turned to the other and she was like it is a bit spooky no and then the other one turned and went yeah but it's just in good fun (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> just like yeah, as long as you keep re- remember that, yeah, don't let it get too crazy. Even the rich just like to have a a good time and celebrate the dead on Halloween. Yeah, well, remember um, young Goodman Brown's foray into the forest where he talked to sees Goody Cloyce, an accused witch in the Salem witch trials. Yep, uh, that took place on uh, Halloween night or uh, whatever they called it back then. All Hallows Eve. Um, so yeah, we're in the lead up and then this is also preparation for the crucible episode. But the thing is, is the crucible is, uh, it's, I think it's commendable in the way it, you know, packages history in a digestible form, but it's not history. So we want to do a separate episode. Uh, I mean, I, the more I looked into it, the more I thought, you know, there's stuff to talk about here. Uh, and especially in this, in, in this sort of loosely chronological journey we're taking through, uh, American literature, uh, I thought it would be a, a, a interesting place to start. There's a lot of intersections with previous uh, works that we've uh, touched on. I mean, most recently, Hobomok features the uh, arrival of the Arbella, the ship in 1630, in which sort of Anne Bradstreet and Simon Bradstreet uh, arrived on, and Simon Bradstreet would have a role to play in his old age in the Salem Witch Trials, or, or he would relinquish his role to... Uh, Stoughton, Judge Stoughton, who was a nutcase, a uh, Harvard graduate. A lot of these people are Harvard graduates. <laughs> yeah, that's weird that that keeps happening. Uh, we shouldn't, that shouldn't be lost on people, Harvard. Harvard's yeah. legacy here is very, very bad. Yeah, I mean, we have a Harvard grad who shows up here to record every now and again. I think that's proof enough that. Grace is a Harvard grad? She's a Harvard grad. She said she went to school. I wish in, that was disclosed to Yeah, me was she like, I we went to school in Massachusetts or whatever, yeah. which is what all Harvard grads say. Oh my god! Just like Zuckerberg or whoever else. I, I I thought maybe Oxford or Cambridge or something, but <laughs> not Harvard. I mean, she's canceled from literary. <laughs> no, she'll be back for the next George Orwell stuff. But uh, we also have uh, Mary Rowlinson. Uh, the way she describes Native Americans in her possession uh, in her getting um, kidnapped by them in a King Philip's War. Uh, this is from the very uh, early on in her uh, narrative here. It is a solemn sight to see so many Christians lying in their blood, some here and some there, like a company of sheep torn by wolves, all of them stripped naked by a company of hellhounds. So Native Americans are hellhounds. Roaring, singing, ranting, and insulting, as if they would have torn our very hearts out. Yet the Lord, by his almighty power, preserved a number of us from death. Um, yeah, so uh, you you see the... And the connection between Native Americans and Satan is one that gets very developed in this time period. Um, basically between you got King Philip's war and then after King Philip's war, you end up having King uh, William's war in Maine, which has the French and the Wabanaki Indians versus the English colonies 
who were basically not adhering to what they said they do after at the end of King Philip's War. So let's play a few sections from this. I have three main texts that I've used to uh, sort of orient myself here. The one that we'll get to first is uh, by Francis Hill. It's called A Delusion of Satan, The Full Story of the Salem Witch Trials, which is more of a, a sort of straight narrative one, but it talks, it, it, it goes over a lot of th- different things. Um, and I thought this part on the, uh, on the sort of fear of Native Americans uh, around King Philip's War and the aftermath uh, kind of sets the table for that. It should be mentioned that uh, in the King William's War up in Maine, there's a number of refugees uh, that came to Salem Village after, like, to escape, um, you know, Native American sackings and uh, raids of their villages, uh, including George Burroughs, probably the most famous person executed, who was a Salem minister a couple times in the 1680s. But as we'll see, Salem, the average uh, lifespan or career of a minister in New England was about 22 years. And Salem went through, uh, they had Bailey, Burroughs twice, uh, Diodat Lawson, and then Samuel Paris. So they, and we'll get into sort of why it was so fractious, um, but it was. And so George Burroughs uh, came back, um, and a, a number of the girls were actually refugees from the uh, war, too. Mary Walcott had lost her mother when she was eight. Elizabeth Hubbard was an orphan, as was Mercy Lewis. We do not know how Elizabeth's parents died, but we do know that Mercy saw her parents slaughtered by Indians. This happened three years before, in Maine. The area then known as Maine was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It covered roughly the same land area as today's state of that name and was remote, dangerous territory, also known as the Eastwood. Mercy had been lucky to escape with her life. All these girls, from the loss of one or both parents as well as cultural conditioning, were as susceptible to hysteria as are the physically weak to disease. And the inhabitants of Salem Village, having endured extreme anxiety and hardship over the past several years, were also susceptible, not to hysteria, but to extreme irrational fear. The defences of common sense, scepticism, and a sense of proportion had been lowered not only by Puritan fanaticism, but also by continual stress, virtually out of existence. Like the rest of the colonists, the villagers had suffered smallpox epidemics, a political upheaval that threw the ownership of their lands into question, and the constant threat of attacks from the Indians. For everyone at that time, death was... Uh, maybe we should get into those political upheavals uh, quick before we go any further. So do you, um, how would you... go? <laughs> Creepy. Yeah. Uh, how would you sort of set the table on what's going on politically in New England and maybe England generally uh, with this? Um, so the the Massachusetts Bay Colony at this point was uh, the genesis of this idea was largely from a group of Puritans that decided that uh, England can never be purified and they have to leave to start not only over again for themselves, but start the world over again. They like thought of their mission in quite cosmic terms um at the same time that they're building up a quite profitable venture at this point in new england england goes to hell basically through a ugly civil war fighting out the same problem but which is like anglicans versus puritans but then also ideas of like democratic leadership versus uh, monarchy and it ends up you know the, there's a, a puritan republic for 10 years that falls apart and then the monarchy is restored. 
but then that monarchy isn't Anglican, it's actually Catholic or has the possibility of being Catholic. And that popish, we would say. Yeah, and that's a popish plot because then you are ruled by Rome because the the new monarch, who is the son of the monarch that they killed, Charles II, comes in. He is, grew up in France, and turns out he has Catholic sympathies, uh, which isn't an issue because he has a Protestant wife. But then um, he has a, a son, and all of a sudden, well, like, we're going to be under a Catholic monarchy, which means we're going to be ruled by Italians, which is a non uh, go yeah, nightmare scenario. Yeah, so they have a soft civil war again essentially called the glorious revolution and they oust their own uh monarch uh and they bring in uh william and mary from what would now be germany but mary is the sister of charles ii uh so it's like that that's the relation right there that's enough for us so at this time like also the massachusetts bay colonies rising in power and also shrinking in power depending on who's in charge in england which is largely up for grabs in like a 40-year period now can i just point out here does it does the massachusetts bay colony puritans have a sort of like you know how england was able to keep their own currency in the euro yeah it was also part of the euro yeah like is is am i understanding the distinction between the puritans and the separatists right and the, the separatists were like we don't want any kind of relationship at all and the puritans were like oh we want that charter because we want these lands and that sort of thing to be like sort of under the because ro- they have some relationship to royalty even though it gets as we will find out like more tr- problematic but is that sort of like the thing that they had they kind of had their cake and were eating it yeah a little bit like it's it's all about like percentages right like separatists would have been like zero nothing not at all like we don't want any part of english culture whereas puritans are like english culture is valuable but it needs to be purified basically Mm -hmm. with a like lack of a better word and so yeah they were totally willing to be like uh we're gonna work for the king because or whoever is in charge because uh they're damned anyways but we would like to use their material goods for the most part and we would love to trade with them because the massachusetts bay colony would be nothing without english trade like it's a it's not a symbiotic relationship yet it's a parasitic relationship and we could talk about that trade is what makes new england valuable at this point is basically as a source for like timber and grain and like cod yeah for slave colonies in the caribbean yeah so there's like different new markets that are opening up (laughs) opportunities (laughs) yeah there's new opportunities that are that are opening up that uh is aiding and uh helping the massachusetts bay colony become as powerful as it is yeah. And so uh, basically in 1684, Charles II revokes the charter that, um, so that, that they get forced into Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, it's, I don't think it's mentioned in one of those books, but part of that charter, that original charter is that they have a right to secede if they want to. That's okay. in the charter. And so they, that's a bad thing to put yeah. in the charter. <laughs> you don't know why you'd write that down. Yeah. They learn their lesson the second time being like, we're just going to do it. Yeah. Um, but so this guy Andros gets put in charge of the colony as sort of, it's like a new federation of New England. I forget exactly what it's called. Uh, it creates New Hampshire. They lose New Hampshire. The, the land that is now New Hampshire is created into a separate colony to weaken basically Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, and Andros is like, comes in as like the king's, uh, representative uh governor and he's like uh you have to be nice to the quakers you have to allow catholics to uh you know pray um you oh you have to swear in a bible yeah which the puritans did not like and uh also we're going to enforce these navigation acts for a trade yeah and uh puritans like 
uh, none of that is cool yeah. with us, actually. <laughs> How about I go fucking insane? Um, yeah. Uh, so basically, he gets cooed out of there. Yeah. During like the William of Orange, and I don't know how much we want to get into that. Or do we want to play that? You said, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Remember, I've seen it before, and it's pretty. It's a it's a good brisk overview. I think it might be just long enough. This is a three minute history by Jabsy. In 1651, Oliver Cromwell became Lord Protector of England after winning the English Civil War, a conflict caused by religious tensions and over the balance of power between King and Parliament. However, shortly after Cromwell died, the monarchy under Charles II was restored in 1660. Charles II inherited the long-standing tensions between King and Parliament, religious issues, and a rivalry with the Dutch Republic, a nation he would fight two wars against. But religion was the chief issue. For instance, Charles attempted to extend religious freedoms, but the Clarendon Code was passed and this ended tolerations of dissenting religions. Then, in 1679, anti-Catholic violence erupted because of a false conspiracy accusing Catholics of plotting to kill the king. This, the Popish plot, also brought the succession of the crown into question. This was because Charles's Catholic brother James was set to inherit the throne and many demanded that he should be excluded from it. The ensuing exclusion crisis saw Parliament split and a two-party system emerge. Whigs called for James to be excluded, whereas the Tories supported him. The exclusion crisis ended when King Charles dissolved Parliament, and then, in 1683, a group of Whigs were found guilty of planning to assassinate the King and his brother as part of the Rye House plot. James's popularity increased because of the plot, so when Charles died, James inherited the throne in 1685. But soon after taking power, an illegitimate child of Charles, the Duke of Monmouth, launched a rebellion to try and claim the throne for himself. The Monmouth rebellion was crushed in a couple of months, however James began to lose support once again. People feared the increase of the standing army and didn't like his push for religious equality with the Declaration of Indulgence. Yet, many saw Catholic rule in England as only temporary because his successor was his Protestant daughter Mary, and she was married to the Protestant Prince of Orange and Stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, William III. But this changed in June 1688 when James had a son, thus starting a Catholic dynasty. So seven notable Englishmen, the immortal seven. Feudalism is so awesome. <laughs> well, just yeah, like an entire nation's like economy and well-being is like, well, as long as it doesn't have a kid, it's all right. Yeah, exactly. And he does like, all right, it's on. <laughs> invited William of Orange to land an army in England and claim the throne while they rose up in support of him. William had entertained the idea for some time because the Dutch Republic and a lot of Europe was threatened by the expansionist policies of Louis XIV of France. An anti-French alliance had been formed in Europe, the League of Augsburgs, but William still couldn't afford to see an Anglo-French alliance. So, when his ally, the Holy Roman Empire, agreed to protect the Dutch Republic, he set sail for England. William issued the Declaration of the Hague, promising to only defend the Protestant faith, before landing on the south coast in mid-November 1688. Although William had tens of thousands of men, he avoided confrontation and just waited for the English to turn against their king. Protestant mobs <laughs> rioted across the country and the army and nobles switched allegiances. Realizing his position and fearful of execution, James fled the country in early December. William and his wife Mary were crowned the following February and passed the Bill of Rights. This ended the threat of an absolute monarchy in England, promised the population some rights, and banned Catholics from inheriting the throne. <laughs> However, the new monarchs were faced with both war and rebellion. Louis XIV responded to the invasion by starting the Nine Years' War, a war which England would later be pulled into. Plus, James had held considerable support in Ireland and with some Highland clans. So these, the Jacobites, began to rebel against William's rule. The French helped James return to Ireland in March 1689, and there he gathered supporters to try and reclaim the throne. However, William was able to link up with the Protestant population of Ulster, the descendants of the Scottish and English family. Yeah, we can maybe cut out there, but uh, okay, yeah, that's super interesting. So, um, yeah, so there's a, a, a mirroring coup 
1689 in New England, where uh, and Simon Bradstreet and Bradstreet's uh, husband yep. uh, plays a role in it. Uh, also, the Mathers do, and basically they want to get the uh, the sort of uh, soft on Catholic people out too. And uh, yeah. Andros gets gets uh, there's a there's a tax revolt first that he fights off. Uh, and then he uh, he can't fight off the uh, uh, the the coup that there's like a mob basically, and people are freaking out, like accusing Andros of uh, instead of going to fight the French and Native Americans in uh, Maine, he's going to team up with them and come put down the Puritans. Uh, yeah, it's like it's like the Jade Helm of. Uh, I was about to say they're like you can see they're like early American seeds of like of being just sprouting ever so slightly in this moment. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's like fractal history. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's go back to uh, Frances Hill's uh, Delusion of Satan, where she talks about the uh, shadow of the Indian Wars, and imperial wars, I guess. The assumption that death comes at the end of a long life, except in rare instances, belongs to the 20th century. But epidemics that strike down huge numbers, especially of babies and children, are hard to bear even for those all too accustomed to the notion that life is precarious. The colonial charter, revoked in 1684, had not yet been restored. Without it, the colonists had no legal right to the lands that, for most of them, constituted the bulk of their wealth. The rumours reaching the colony from London about increased Mathers negotiations were far from encouraging, but the greatest fear was not epidemics or loss of wealth, but the Indians. It would be hard to exaggerate the terror inspired in the settlers by the Native Americans. Unsurprisingly, they had responded to the white people's cruelty, treachery and injustice with merciless fury. When the English first arrived, the Indians had welcomed and aided them. But the English took their lands, broke treaties and killed and enslaved them. They also, less culpably, infected them with smallpox and other diseases to which the Native people had no immunity, cutting their numbers by three quarters in less than fifty years. In 1675, the Indians' gathering rage and desperation broke forth in a countrywide attack. King Philip's War, so named because the Indian leader Metacomet was dubbed Philip by the English, lasted only two years, but was the bloodiest in American history. One in ten settlers was killed. That figure represents more people dead per capita than in any other conflict in which Americans have taken part. Seventy soldiers from Salem Village and adjacent towns died in one battle. Young women such as Mary Walcott and Mercy Lewis grew from infancy to childhood in that war's aftermath and were exposed daily to the grief of its widows and orphans and the innumerable tales of its horrors. Of the 1676 massacre at Lancaster, only 40 miles from Salem Village, Mary Rowlandson wrote shortly afterward, It is a solemn sight to see so many Christians lying in their blood, some here and some there, like a company of sheep torn by wolves, all of them stripped naked by a company of hellhounds, roaring, singing, ranting and insulting as if they would have tore our very hearts out. The reciprocal hatred of the Puritans for the Indians is dramatically illustrated by an episode in 1677 in which a group of women emerging from church set upon two Indian prisoners from Maine and with their bare hands literally tore them apart. An eyewitness reported that we found the Indians with their heads off and gone and their Jesus. flesh in a manner pulled from their bones. In 1692, there were signs that the Indians might be about to launch another full-scale offensive. King William's War, fought between the French and the English but with Indian support for the French, had started three and a half years before. The Indians had already perpetrated those devastating raids in Maine, to which Mercy Lewis's parents had fallen victim. 
The most recent had happened that winter on January 25 in York. The homes of three or four hundred people were burned, eighty people were captured, and fifty were killed. Inhabitants of Salem Village, living scattered as they did over a largely undefendable area, felt exceedingly vulnerable to an attack that might come at any time. The Salem villagers had written in 1667 in a petition to Salem Town, asking to be allowed not to send men to join the watch there. The distance of our houses, one from another, some a mile, some further, is such that it is difficult sending one neighbour to another in dark nights in a wilderness that is so little cleared and by ways unpassable. They showed the degree of their fear of the Indians when they added, "'Tis probable, if the French or Dutch should come, they will have a convoy of Indians from east or west and come first upon remote dwellers. The consideration whereof is liable to strike terror into the hearts of women and weak ones, especially considering what dreadful examples former times hath afforded in that respect in this country from Indians, and from others also, in the night season, when their husbands have been absent. The constant political arguments about the night watch... Uh, and watch duty and also uh, military forces and how you project military power into the environment around you. You hear libertarians talk about uh, property and who owns property and what the use of the state is. Mm-hmm. And you look back and the point is like no, nobody would own shit if it wasn't for community action through state power. Yeah. Like... And that's that's what creates like even when you know socialists uh, mention the fire department as an example of socialism. The cops like, are socialism. It's like well, I mean, cops are. It's more obvious to people, but even the fire department, right? Yeah, like, yeah. The fire department basically exists, and this is a just so story, but I think it's accurate. Basically, so like the capitalist warehouse doesn't get burnt down. <laughs> like that. That's why originally these things are are uh, created. Like mm-hmm. it's not for egalitarianism. It's not because everybody deserves. It. I mean, there's some of that, obviously. You know, good for Ben Franklin and his public spiritedness. Well, I mean, I'm the uh, the uh, the making firefighters uh, uh, go from private to public was because of the uh, race riots during the Civil War in New York City for New Yorkers. Oh. So yeah, there's a direct correlation <laughs> between. Uh, worker uprisings going up to the upper east side and upper west side and killing people and and saying like well we should maybe not have private um uh firefighters anymore right uh, yeah so i mean the so y- <laughs> and and that's a big part uh, uh annoyance uh for the puritans at this point is because of you know king philip's war and this is similar to a lot of the wars that preceded the american revolution um who's gonna who's gonna get taxed to pay for that war yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that, uh, creates strife. So, you know, maybe the Iraq war wasn't such a free, uh, endeavor and after all, but, uh, well, I think what Mary Rowlandson outlined so well, and we cover it, uh, in much greater detail in the, the episode on that, but just how much of constant warfare it is to live in colonial America that it's mm-hmm. like almost like to be, a uh, colonist is to essentially subsume yourself into some form of PTSD. Definitely, yeah. And that, I think that can't be stressed enough, especially when we talk about, you know, do they actually believe there are witches? What's going on with people? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, a lot of these people have seen horrifying things. Even the judges were like, you know, part, cur- colonels or whatever in the wars. Um, it's seen a lot of shit. And it's never over, is the other thing. It's not like, 
it's it's it, things don't wrap up in like neat packages where it's like oh that war is over so that conflict is over it's constant, constant skirmishing yeah. like that's why they're afraid of forests because they don't know like what enemy might be in there that's like about to scalp them yeah. and their family and because it is it's this is no longer thanksgiving times like no this no is like <laughs> this is beef now this is a nightmare uh the native americans realize that they're getting pushed uh, more and more off their lands they've yeah. made that discovery like by, by 1692 they've made that discovery by at least a quarter of a cent i mean Honestly, Pequot War, like mid sixteenth century, century, or mid seventeenth century, like it's it's on yeah, at that point. Exactly, and uh, uh, man, it is it is crazy. Um, let's uh, go a little bit more with Francis Hill. Cotton Mather believed that the Indians were the wretched remnant of a race seduced to the Western Hemisphere by the devil, so that he might rule undisturbed by Christians teaching the gospel. <laughs> This view, of course, made them all the more terrifying. The fact that whole tribes had been converted to Christianity by the French made them seem not less sinister, but if anything more so. Catholicism was to the Puritans as abhorrent as devil worship. The Indians' menace was deepened still further by the fact that they appeared to exert a terrifying attraction over those in their power. Of all the New Englanders taken captive and offered the chance to go home again, between 25 and 71 percent elected to stay. That at least a quarter of captives should have preferred life with the Indians to their Puritan existence must have seemed threatening indeed. It's called voting with your feet. Folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The power of purchasing power. Let's talk about the Mathers a little bit. Um, Two weirdest names in American history, I've decided. Well, Increase Mather. That's his dad. Uh, who uh, was a... President of Harvard University, Grace's Harvard. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh no, sorry. Increase Mather and Cotton Mather. So, uh, he's named Increase, and actually, I do not hate this naming convention, and think we should come back to it. Increase. You know why he's called Increase? No. Did you pick that up because uh, business was booming, oh, and wow. you know the, the natural increase. You know, you you plot out how many increase in cows am I going to have by four years? How many increase in corn, or how many increase in livestock? Basically, I feel like I hate it more though now. Um, yeah, I know it's crazy. It's so utilitarian. Abundance Mather. That, literally, that's not a joke. There's yeah. probably somebody named Abundance. <laughs> oh yeah, I feel like that's like a pretty. Like hope and abundance. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, I actually do like that. Uh, Increase Mather. Um, it's like a mnemonic device for that era, but it's literally his name. It's like uh, NBA players that change their names, like Meta World Peace or World Be Free. Oh, yeah. Um, I assume World Be Free changes name. So, yeah, I got some notes on a good old Cotton Mather here. Born in Boston, 1663. So he was young uh, yeah. when the trials were coming. In the 1680s, he's, uh, uh, 1683 is hitting his, tw- he's 21 when the charter's revoked. Uh, publishing all sorts of stuff about, like, the role of women, stuff about the, uh, King Philip's War. L- a lot of, like, the state theocracies line. On yeah. Things. He beca- he's basically the Sean Spicer for, no, I guess that's, that's doing that's him fair. dirty. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm t- he's like, the he's, first- put, he's prolific author. Like, he writes yeah. fucking books. He's like the first, prolific or like kind of like er colonial person he's not he doesn't have any ties to england but his parents are from there mm-hmm. and but he ha- so he has like their tradition in a way but he's gotten rid of like the more specifics about like you know like separatist versus puritan and things like that like he's definitely a creature of the americas 
uh, but also like educated at this like higher level that uh, was awarded to him via like increased mather. Yeah, so he graduates Harvard in 1681 at the age of 15. Yeah. Uh, so like not like the Aaron Schwartz of his time. Yeah, he actually um, finished school on like uh, Jeff Zuckerberg. Um, and we should note later in his life, after he you know murdered or uh, helped well, kill. 19 people yeah by you know i mean he is responsible for a lot of this stuff uh he helped promote inoculation uh which is like that early sign of science creeping into it although you see so like they tried to be scientific with the witch evidence here too like with the touch test and yeah it's it's the same process just with really bad evidence that's yeah going down the wrong path um uh, so his father increased as a pastor at the North Square Church in Boston, also president of Harvard. Uh, also another Ivy League connection. Cotton convinced Elihu Yale to donate to what became uh, Yale University. So these people are all over. The Puritans are all over this stuff. Um, in 1689, he wrote Memorable Provinces. Uh, and in that, it talked about the Catholic washwoman Goody Glover, who was executed as a witch for afflicting the Goodwin family. Um and uh, contemporary Robert Califf, who we might talk about later, a uh, big critic of Mather and the witch hysteria, um, criticized that book for leading to some of the witch hysteria. Um, I mean, 1689 also increased Mather, basically against spectral evidence, which means taking the accuser's word for it that a person's uh, spirit visited them. Yep. Um, he also wrote in... Uh, in 1684, an essay for the recording of illustrious providences, which is a compilation of stories showing the divine uh, hand of divine providence in rescuing people from natural and supernatural disasters. So a little bit of witchcraft there. And then his son comes five years later with uh, memorable providences relating to the witchcraft and possessions, a faithful account of many wonderful and surprising things that have befallen several bewitched and possessed persons in New England. Oh yeah, and let's go back on. Uh, this is uh, this is from Storm of uh, Witchcraft. Which, if I was going to recommend one book, yeah, um, uh, I, I think I think the uh, Boyer and Nissenbaum, which we'll get to a little, in a second, um, is a, maybe a classic. But this is the most up to date uh, one volume version by Emerson uh, Baker, A Storm of Witchcraft: The Salem Trials and the American Experience. That's Oxford University Press. And, uh, yeah, here's the Mathers uh, uh, in the shadow of King Philip's War and talking about witches. In this invisible world of spiritual conflict, the enemy remain hid all the while under some fair cloak, but they shall proceed until they be known. Satan and his minions had been unleashed by God to tempt Puritans into sin and degeneracy. Sermons such as Stoughton's painted a terrible picture of the horrible fate that awaited sinners and all of New England if they succumbed to temptation. In 1674, Increase Mather warned that the Lord should seem at this day to be numbering many of the rising generation for the sword, as if to say, I will bring a sword to avenge the quarrel of a neglected covenant. The next year, Mather's warning seemed proven uncannily accurate when King Philip's War broke out. The struggle between the native and English populations of New England was another symptom of the growing pains facing the region. Native Americans felt increasingly squeezed by the growing English population, which pushed further into their lands and threatened their traditional lifeways in the process. Fighting started in the summer of 1675 in southern New England and continued along the northern frontier until the spring of 1678. 
The war was one of the bloodiest and most destructive conflicts in American history. Thousands of Native Americans and hundreds of colonists were killed, injured, or displaced, and the fighting left much of the frontier zones of New England a blackened, smoldering ruin. The war broke Native power in southern New England, with the majority of the population being killed, sold into slavery, or fleeing to northern New England or New York. The reverse held true in Maine, where the Wabanaki had destroyed most English settlements. With the Treaty of Casco, 1678, the English even agreed to pay annual tribute of a peck of corn per family to the local sachems in recognition of native sovereignty. Beyond the suffering, the war was extremely expensive. The English colonial administrator Edward Randolph estimated the English losses in houses and livestock at 150,000 pounds, and the colonies claimed it cost 100,000 pounds to wage the war. This was at a time when the total wealth for an average English settler's estate might total 200 pounds in real estate, livestock, and personal possessions. While these figures may be on the high side, the magnitude of the financial loss is indisputable, as is its impact on the colonies. Colonial treasuries would be depleted, and colonists would face high taxes for years to come. Although most of the fighting took place far away from Essex County, the war had a powerful effect on the region. Not even people in Salem Town felt safe. They went so far as to build a half-mile-long palisade across Salem Neck to defend against native attack. It cost more than 250 pounds to build that palisade and strengthen other defenses for the town. They also prayed for the safe return of the hundreds of members of the Essex County militia who had gone off to fight. Almost. All right, and let's uh, move a little bit ahead in uh, the Storm of Witchcraft um, for a bit more on the sort of knowledge uh, of witches in the community in general, which was greatly, as we've already mentioned by the two books, by the Mathers. Uh, engendered and helped out by the Mathers publicizing, you know, hey, if you don't believe in witches, you're helping Satan, buddy. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's like when, and I think the modern equivalent of that is like when religious people, like primarily like evangelical Christians are like, like, well, you know what? They, they just worship uh, uh, atheism or they just like refer to atheism as a religion. So I was like, you already have a religion. Right. But it should be us instead of nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to go through all of the trouble of not being a Puritan, you're going to basically still go through all the fucking like meetings and masses, although it's just at nighttime instead of day, basically. Yeah. You're going to get a lot of shit. Yeah, and have to drink blood or I guess do some <laughs> sign books with blood. Which who wants to do that? Do not do that. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you do, don't do ble- not don't don't bleed book. onto paper because yeah. the devil reads it then. Um, oh yeah, actually, here's a little bit more. Uh, this is in the the uh, post mortem for you know what we need to change about society after King Philip's War, and uh, uh, I think it's Cotton Mather has some interesting theories. In King Philip's War and its terrible losses. Puritan ministers had their proof of spiritual decline and God's wrath. In 1679, the general court called for a synod of clergy and lay leaders to look into the colony's evils and how to redress them. The greatest was a visible decay of godliness, profaneness, Sabbath-breaking, excessive pride, and covetousness of wealth. The synod called for a program to support moral reformation of the entire colony. This would require legislative action, as well as hard work by ministers and their parishioners. The legislature responded by tightening up laws concerning taverns and focusing on education. There were renewed efforts to provide financial support to Harvard College, 
the training ground of Puritan ministers, and to require public education in communities with at least 500 souls. The Reforming Synod of 1679 was called for after the death of Governor John Leverett, who was replaced by Simon Bradstreet. Leverett, a political realist, had exerted a moderating influence on the strict religious... Let's cut it there. I mean, it is funny how you go to education and uh, prohibition. And, you know, yeah. people are drinking too much and they're not learning enough. And that's the problem. It's not, you know, what how we're governing as, like, a you know political elite. It's not a land issue by any means. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me when, after 9-11, when Jerry Falwell went on TV and he goes, well, you know why this happened is because of the pagans in this country and feminism. Yeah, and I mean, as witches, you know, witches is sort of the uh, marriage of those two things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> here's some more uh, war hysteria stuff. Indeed, the symptoms of the afflicted in Salem seem to suggest direct knowledge of several recent outbreaks, including the lowest oft case in England and the recent affliction of the Goodwin children of Boston. Accounts had been published of both of these cases. Diodot Lawson observed a grievous fit by Abigail Williams, who ran dangerously about the house, going near the fire, gathering firebrands and throwing them, sometimes making as if she would fly, stretching up her arms as high as she could and crying, wish, 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 several times. Lawson was told that on other occasions Abigail would appear to try to run up the chimney and had attempted to go into the fire. Martha Goodwin would have to be restrained as well to keep her out of the fire. In the Lowestoft case, a bewitched girl ran round about the house holding her apron, crying, Hush, hush. Like Abigail, she showed a strange fascination with fire. Abigail was not known to vomit pins, but she was stuck by them on multiple occasions. The Lowestoft outbreak occurred in 1662, but the account that included these details was not published until 1682, and then it rapidly became widely available. In 1688, Cotton Mather observed the Goodwin children in Boston, and the next year he published Memorable Providences, relating to witchcrafts and possessions, an account of their case. Here, too, the account suggests that the tormented pretended to fly. Yea, they would fly like geese, and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground, and their arms waved like the wings of a bird. The Lowestoft case was published in 1682, and Mather's account of the Goodwins was printed in 1689, though these would have been the latest and best-known cases of witchcraft presumably known not only to ministers and doctors, but also to young girls, especially those who lived in a parsonage. Memorable providences even included a description of witchcraft in Mora, Sweden. In the spring and summer of 1679, Mora had witnessed a huge witch hunt. Based largely on spectral evidence recounted by numerous children, 60 suspects were interrogated and 23 were burned at the stake. Such widespread participation of children the quick spread of charges, and the use of spectral evidence all made the case seem quite unusual and extreme, though it bears uncanny similarities to the situation in Salem. As Norton has noted, consciously or unconsciously, the Salem village afflicted had incorporated the previously recorded behaviors into their own repertoires. Even in 1692, some observers believed fraud was at work. Reverend Samuel Willard questioned the credibility of the afflicted, noting, The common vogue that they are scandalous persons, liars, and loose in their conversation, and therefore not to be believed. There was some courtroom evidence to support such a charge. A supporter of Elizabeth Proctor testified that he had heard one of the girls admit that she did it for sport. They must have some sport. The nurse family made a well-organized campaign to discredit Rebecca's accusers. They produced depositions that questioned the veracity of both Mercy Lewis and Betty Hubbard. 
They pointed out that Susanna Sheldon contradicted herself in her testimony. And they gave yeah, so, I mean, now's probably a good time to talk about what we think was actually going on, and I, I assume neither of us think actual witchcraft and demonic possession. No, yeah, I'll say probably not. Yeah, I, I mean, 1% chance, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to um, like, uh, rule it out entirely. Like what happened with between Sarah Good and uh, Noyce uh, and the blood with the to blood? Drink? That's a real thing. It's pretty, that's a real thing. We'll, t- we'll end on that, maybe. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I... I so a few things going on. So the the first few girls, the Paris girls, um, I think. Well, his niece and his daughter, uh, and we're, we'll get in more into Samuel Paris in the Crucible episode. Uh, but they had they ba- basically were crawling around and then were having these sorts of convulsion things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's fairly clear to me that you know the theory of uh, what's called conversion disorder, which seems to me to be like a sort of cousin of Tourette syndrome. Yeah. Uh, where you and we'll play a little bit here. There's there's modern instances of this. Uh, the famous case in Leroy, New York, about ten years ago in the wake of the financial crisis, that um, these ticks uh, develop and. In a Puritan context, especially when you have Samuel Paris, uh, talking about, you know, he knows how many devils are in the church and who yeah. they are. Uh, that's a, like basically a paraphrase of name of one of his sermons. That sort of thing, or even Tourette syndrome, you can see how that's going to be instantly interpreted into a sort of, or not even instantly, over time interpreted into a sort of satanic context. And uh, um, Boyer and Nissebaum, who wrote Salem Possessed on the Social Origins of Witchcraft, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, talk about how the difference between, um, it, it's all down into the interpretation of the adults in that of that behavior. Mm-hmm. So they could interpret it as basically the exact same things, writhing, you know, seeing images, uh as a awakening of sorts, um, as it was like in the in seventeen hundreds, eighteenth century, yeah. or it could be seen as like a witch paranoia or a demon attack, and that's what was happening in Salem because of how fractious the community was, basically. Well, and I think those the those authors had outlined specifically an instance where the exact same circumstances had happened in seventeen thirty four. Under the tutelage of Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the more famous right. uh, uh, religious leaders in colonial history, and it's, he saw the exact same signs, and he's like, "Ah, oh, these these are visions coming from God." Yeah, and everyone's like, "Oh, great!" And yeah. no one died. Hell yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody was hanged. Yeah. It was actually good for religion, yeah, and yeah. not completely discrediting a theocracy. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I, I, I think it's, especially when you think of Tourette's syndrome, imagine somebody having Tourette's back then and how yep. fucked they had been. Yeah. Like, and, and because there's no context for how you understand that. It seems satanic. Like, why are you swearing all the time, man? Uh, why are you having these weird tics? And it's, uh, and I don't know what's going on with, um, Tourette's syndrome, um, but with conversion disorder, um, it seems very, very clear that, and I mean, if you want to look at the videos, it is kind of, it's kind of, I mean, I'd be freaking out too if I was going through that with what those girls at the, there's a, a bunch of girls at this high school in, uh, in upstate New York that have these weird tics and they can't stop like either shouting or sh- like grunting or moving their hands and it sucks and it's catchy apparently. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's pretty horrifying, but, um, I think that's what, uh, I think it was going on, but also, and we'll talk about this in the Crucible episode as well. 
but the Putnam family does seem to be like um, fraudsters to me. Like, they yeah, were like, oh, great, lying. this is happening. And I think there's actually a fine line between what's conscious fraud and what's, you know, just hysteria. Like, we don't have the same evidentiary requirements, obviously. I mean, they were trying to set some, and, and this obviously, like, reinforced the need for evidentiary requirements. But, um, like, what, like, a woman, for instance, we, um, there's a, there's a few books that focus on the sort of feminist side of this. Devil in the Shape of the Woman, uh, by Carlson, uh, Carolyn Carlson, and, um, uh, Damned Woman by Elizabeth Reese. And what uh, Reese especially points out is that um, women were more likely to say, like, did I? Wait, did I make a pact with Satan? I mean, you're suggesting I did. Maybe I did. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, and, and I think this is an intersectional issue because this is especially the case with Tatuba, who's like, as a slave, is is basically learned over her life how to anticipate what her masters want. Yeah. And I think that's very obvious in the uh, Hathorn, uh, uh, Hathorn question of her, um, and where she's the in the first sort of big confessor. Um, but uh, well, there's a number of these uh, scenarios. I mean, especially looking at it through a feminist lens, when these women are talking about how they need to find some source for where these fits are coming from because their husband is threatening to beat them to death. So all of a sudden, the the scenario is not did they do it or did they not. It's mm-hmm. If they admit to this, it's over because they're being if they're if they have the fits, that means they're being cursed by someone else. And it means they probably won't be murdered by their husband. It's like a it's a extremely traumatic position to be put in. It becomes very relatable to be like, yes, yeah, someone's putting a hex on me probably right. because I don't want to die. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a few different kinds of witchcraft, and we already talked like it was pervading the culture a little bit, and then you also had folk magic, so the horseshoe above the door, that's thought of as counter magic or white magic, um, but still magic, and people like Samuel Paris would not have looked kindly upon it. No. Um, And you also have uh, image magic, uh, which is the sort of um, voodoo doll type of thing, or poppets as they were known in New England. Yeah. and maleficium. Uh, the interesting thing about a lot of these accusations is it's like, you made my cow get sick, or something's going on with my chickens because of this woman who I... And, it hasn't rained in the last 30 days. And the other connection scholars have made is that, like, witches, especially in the European context, are people who were turned down favors by the people they're accused by. Yeah, so, weird. like, I ask Alex for a Coke... Yep. And he says no. And then later, like, to basically, he feels guilty about something. That guilt has him accuse me of being a witch. Yeah. Um, and I'm not one. Uh, so yeah, that's a little roundup of, uh, of, of witchcraft there. You also have, uh, falling church attendance, uh, going on, especially in, uh, uh, uh Salem Village. Um, and which, witches were like something you would display publicly it's like a fun thing or not a fun thing to look at but it reminds you of how important religion is it's a binding agent it's like the the classic like of it like like we're the in group they're the out group Mm -hmm. it's like and like defining the out group like if you read like what's uh uh edward saeed's like masterpiece on orientalism like the the best way to solidify the in group is to identify the out group so for these like it's no coincidence that like this Puritan movement is kind of losing a little bit of steam and to be like, well, you know what? We're completely uh, overrun by the devil right now. 
to give it like that last bit of juice, like that Nas juice (laughs) to keep the project moving. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so much so that in the height of the trials, um, the witches or the accusers um, were being driven by a horse and a man per woman. Yeah. Which is like that's like the uh, that's like the Hummer limo of the seventeenth <laughs> yeah. century. Yeah, uh, with a pool in the back. Like that's that's rolling in high class. Mm-hmm. If you have all these these girls, they upend the it, basically the power structure of society. It's young adolescent women, largely, although there were some middle aged uh, or older ones, but um, largely that are deciding all of this stuff because they were given power by um, you know the lunatics. Um, or the uh, Puritan elite, uh, the Puritan elite, you know, increase in Cotton Mather. The the, the theology side of it was very strong. You have Governor uh, or Simon Bradstreet, who uh, uh, Anne is dead for about twenty years at this point. Yep, um, and he remarried, uh, but uh, he's governor um, when the trials break out. Um, but he's old as hell. Uh, and so he, uh, puts a Stoughton in charge. And the funny thing about, like, so a lot of the, uh, the people Sewell, Danforth, a lot of the judges that were, uh, put on this commit, this, like, sort of emergency, uh, court of Oyer and Terminer, um, they'd all seen witchcraft, uh, cases before. So it wasn't like this came out of nowhere for them and they'd actually handled them better than this by like, hey, you know, they didn't hang people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but what, I think this is in Storm of Witchcraft. Uh, it talks about how there was a, a piracy case and some people got arrested for piracy, but they oh, had a lot yeah. of connections with the elite and they basically were let off scot-free. Yep. Which is like he shows you the connection between the organized crime and the state isn't quite as uh, wide as it ought to be. Yeah. Um, and it maybe may be made to look that way for appearances' sake. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the... Uh, the distinction between Salem Town and Salem Village. Right. Uh, Salem Town is, you know, it, it, it's as you would expect. It's the port town. Salem Village is a, a village that sprouts up later, basically, because farms are needed to feed people in Salem uh, Town. And eventually they're like, you know, we, we own our own stuff. Salem Town is not so hospitable to that because they've already had a few cities branch off. Uh, and they're like, no, we, we want Salem. Also, you're called Salem Village. I mean, it's, yeah. we're both Salem. So let's, uh, let's keep things together there. Um, the best, uh, the best take on this, I think, comes from Boyer and Nissenbaum. Uh, their classic, uh, um, The Social Origins of Witchcraft. This came out. It's like the mid seventies, I think. Yeah, 1974. Um, and it's referenced by everything now, yeah. um, basically. And uh, so I think Storm of Witchcraft essentially just had like half a chapter that was a recap of their findings. Yeah, and Delusion of Satan also has an extended period where it just summarizes the, uh, this work. So first, uh, uh, discussion on the uh, economics of Salem. By the 1690s, Salem Town was a far cry from the community it had been half a century earlier when the first farmers had left it for the hinterland settlement which would become Salem Village. Prosperous from the start, the town in the years after 1660 entered its great era of economic and specifically mercantile expansion. Well before the end of the century, that expansion had led, as one recent study puts it, to a distinctly urban pattern of life in Salem Town. 
The town's growing commercial importance was officially recognized in 1683 when the general court designated Boston and Salem as the colony's two ports of entry through which all imports and exports had to pass. Increasingly, Salem was gaining access to a broader trading orbit of which London was the center. Such evidence as the close correspondence during these years between grain prices in Salem and in London indicates that the Atlantic market was becoming a reality, and the merchants of Salem Town were immersed in it, exporting cod and mackerel, furs, horses, grain, beef, pork, masts, and naval stores to the other American colonies, the West Indies, the Canaries, Newfoundland, and England, and importing tobacco, sugar, cloth, rum, and a host of other products. In the 1690s, 26 Salem men owned 21 merchant vessels, averaging nearly 50 tons each and comprising 12% of the total tonnage in Massachusetts. While this left Salem far behind dominant Boston, it did make her, as the 1683 legislation had recognized, the only other really significant mercantile center in the colony. One consequence of these developments was a sharp rise in the town's relative wealth. In the first thirty years of its settlement, the period before 1660, the average size of individual Salem town estates recorded in probate court had actually been lower than the average for the rest of Essex County. In contrast, during the period 1661 through 81, the estates of Salem town dwellers averaged almost one-third higher than those from the rest of the county. But Salem's rising prosperity and cosmopolitan connections did not benefit equally all segments of the town population. Quite the contrary. In the 1661 through 81 period, again on the evidence of probated wills, the richest 10% of Salem's population controlled 62% of its wealth, almost three times as much as it had controlled a generation earlier. What had happened, in fact, was... Weird. So the capitalist elite seemed to be accruing more and more of the wealth of the country. That is that is weird. Spooky. That's a definitely a unique... It's spooky, yeah. It's perfect for the times because it's hard to even imagine that now. It's it's weird. It must be some sort of witchcraft that's making capitalism inefficient. And, definitely a one-off. You know, serve the, the few people who own capital. <laughs> it's very sp Spooky. The richest 10% of Salem's population controlled 62% of its wealth, almost three times as much as it had controlled a generation earlier. What had happened, in fact, was that the prosperity of the town had polarized the distribution of its wealth and propelled into a position of clear dominance a single group of men, the merchants. The rise of the merchant class was reflected in Salem town politics, in the years before 1665, twice as many farmers as merchants had been elected town selectmen. In the 1665 through 1700 period, the merchants among the selectmen outnumbered the farmers by six to one. <sighs> Only those few farmers with close merchant ties and affinities, like the Porter family, which we shall examine in the next chapter, continued to exercise any sustained political influence in the town. So let's talk about the class breakdown of this uh, a little bit. Um, the interesting thing, uh, I mean, to very to reduce it um, drastically, what you have going on is a mercantile capitalist elite uh, overwhelming a Puritan theocratic and agricultural elite. 
the Salem witch trials and the people who are basically accusing uh, the side, the side generally that's accusing people of being witches is from that agricultural, uh, uh, the Salem village and the people that are closer to Salem, the closer to Salem town you are, the more likely you are to be accused of uh, being a witch or a wizard. Um, and so it's, 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 uh, we'll play Actually, I got another clip here that will set this up a little bit more. As early as 1689, in his memorable providences relating to witchcrafts and possessions, Cotton Mather had urged his readers to shun a frame of discontent if they wished to avoid becoming witches. When persons, through discontent at their poverty or at their misery, shall be always murmuring and repining at the providence of God, the devils do then invite them to an agreement, and downright witchcraft is the upshot of it. From the perspective of those who led the attack in 1692, such an analysis might have seemed to explain not only disruptive malcontents at the lower end of the scale, people like Job Tookie and Sarah Good, but also prospering and upwardly mobile people like John Proctor, John Willard, and Rebecca Nurse. There were, after all, various ways to betray discontent with one's natural station. One could turn embittered and spiteful, to be sure. But on the other hand, like the young proctor and nurse, one might combine aggressive behavior with good fortune and improve one's status. From a 17th century viewpoint, swift economic rise was just as tangible an expression of discontent as was muttering or complaining. Everybody knew that by 1692, John Proctor was wealthier than any of his accusers, yet they also knew that he remained good man Proctor, while Thomas Putnam, by virtue of his father's station, bore the more honorific designation Mr. Putnam. As Abigail Williams cried out during a spectral visitation in mid-April, running down a list of newly accused witches, Oh, yonder is good man Proctor and his wife, and goody nurse, and goody Corey, and goody Cloyce. Abigail's own uncle may not have been receiving his salary at the time, but he was nevertheless Mr. Paris, and at the witchcraft examination of Mary Clark of Haverhill, young Anne Putnam commented sarcastically that even though the accused woman was now addressed as Mistress Mary Clark, Anne well knew that people used to call her Goody Clark. All of these people were on the move socially and economically. Yet to many New Englanders of the 17th century, the stability of the social order rested on the willingness of everyone to accept his given station in life. Refusal to do so was more than a personal weakness. It represented a tangible threat to the social fabric itself. When Cotton Mather preached a sermon in 1689 in response to a Boston witchcraft case of that year, he chose a biblical text which made this very point. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. This is awesome. The rebellion Mather had in mind here was surely not the political sort, not in the very year that he had supported the successful overthrow of Governor Andros, but the even more menacing variety implicit in both the spiteful turbulence of those who were sliding down the social ladder and the pushy restlessness of those who were climbing up. The feeling that Mather articulated in this 1689 sermon was one shared by many people in Salem Village three years later. The social order was being profoundly shaken by a superhuman force which had lured all too many into active complicity with it. We have chosen to construe this force as emergent mercantile capitalism. Mather and Salem Village call it witchcraft. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty, I mean, it might be a little bit reductive, 
Um, but I think a very interesting summary on the uh, material outside of this. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very excellent lens to read it through. I mean, it's such a it's such a bizarre scenario that there are many different ways you can trace this, or you can look at it through many different lenses. But I think looking at it like it's an inflection point, like two like a rising power and a falling power, mm-hmm. and they meet each other in the middle, and it's going to be violent for the most part. It's something we're going to see again and again in American history that manifests in like the culture that's present at the time. And this is such a huge cultural break because, yeah. I mean, we've talked about it. Hobamock, Hope Leslie, uh, um, uh, Mary Rowlandson, like the Puritan theocratic culture was dominant. Yeah. Um, and then this is uh, a huge discrediting of it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and this is it for them also. Like they're done, like as a, as a, political and social force the puritan movement is done in on the england english continent it's done in the european mainland like it has this this one kind of last outcrop in america and even their own children are like i don't know and then this is just such a like uh it's a like an accelerationist force is really the only way to look at it yeah, I mean, let's, and, you know, we, I don't want to get too much into the actual 1692, uh, business of it, but it's worth touching on a few of the figures who, um, aren't, uh, really got into in, uh, in the Crucible. And, like, this, this, this period of history and this whole witch affair, it, it makes me sick to my stomach. Like, you hear about the actual individuals involved in this. Uh, and and I might be looking ahead to the next episode a little bit, but I do want to mention uh, Martha Corey, Giles Corey's wife, mm. and we'll talk about this specifically. But the way she first like tries to logic game her way out of this, like, oh, did the girls tell you exactly what clothes I'm wearing? And then the uh, the Puritan like magistrates, uh, I can't remember who's questioning her, maybe Hawthorne, maybe someone else, or maybe Corwin. Uh, says, how did you know we were gonna you, you, you we were gonna ask that? Yeah, yeah. And then it, the 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 most heartbreaking thing for me is she's like Hawthorne asks her, how can you laugh at them or how can you laugh at this? And she says, I can't help it, and they're all against me. And she, it's clear that her laughter in that courtroom is nervous laughter. Yeah, as she sees these girls perform these hysterics. Uh, on cue, like to, to try to, you know, present her as a witch. And, you know, what do you do? And she says she can't help laugh, like that, that she's laughing and she can't help it. Yeah. And she's in the, uh, view of that court, basically sentencing herself to death. Well, see, yeah, it's, it's such a damning display of what that, like, Okay, the the authors of Salem Possessed really po- are, are quite uh, poignant on this, where they say like that the fact that it, the way that the culture had been set up, where you're enticed to lie that someone else had performed a, a spell on you, rather than saying I'm not a witch. Like I, saying I'm not a witch is the most dangerous thing you could do, right? And that, and lying and saying someone else is the is the best thing you could do to save your own life yeah. showed that like that it was doomed to failure. Like this is the, this is the ultimate terminus point. Like not all colonies or, or, or towns in the colonies are going to get up at this point. And this is the most famous one, obviously, but this kind of setup was going to happen. This kind of like 
disaster tragedy, basically. Yeah, I mean, it happened on both sides of the Atlantic, as we found out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, another person I want to talk about, because I don't think he's in the Crucible, although it's, I need to reread it. Maybe he is. But I think this is glossed over. George Burroughs, who was the uh, minister uh, a couple times in the 1680s and always had payment disputes. He, then he went and effed off for a while, but um, he got accused years later and during like five, five to seven years after he actually I got some notes on him. So yeah, George Burroughs, maybe the most famous person put to death, uh, born in Maryland or Virginia when his father was in the U.S. on business from the U.K. He graduated Harvard University, sixteen seventy. In 1676, he's in Cas- uh, the Casco, Maine settlement he's in. It's broken up by an Indian assault. Uh, Burroughs escapes, moved to Salem in 1680, where he ministered for two years uh, and then, you know, had a salary dispute. Had beef with uh, John Putnam, who's the uncle to Thomas, who's one of the main villains we'll find out about uh, in the next episode. And uh, uh, left Maine again uh, in 1683, driven out by Indians again. Um, so he went up to Maine after he left Salem and then came back. Uh, where he moved to Wells, uh, Massachusetts, preached for nine years. And then he was hauled to Salem from Wells, Massachusetts on May 4th, 1692. And uh, Mather said he was uh, promised to be above a witch, a conjurer. Uh, so they had the classifications out there. Um, according to testimony, there's also testimony that he may have abused his wives. There's no um, hard evidence on there like there is for some of the people that were accused. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's an that's another underlying element, maybe a submerged one that like a lot of these men um, like Giles Corey, for instance, beat a, a hired hand to death. Um, and Giles Corey seems like a hero. He's he's the one who um, um, rejected the court's authority until, and so they put rocks on him, um, which yeah. was the old. His famous last words were "more weight." Yeah, um, but he he beat his hired hand possibly to death. Yep, um, and he possibly beat his wife too. Uh, and uh, and Proctor, uh, well, we know Proctor beat Mary Warren, uh, one of the accusers, his uh, servant girl. Uh, that's in the Crucible, uh, and he said he'd beat John Indian too. So like these are violent men, and that there's almost like a you know the Dixie Chicks by Earl song where they like get revenge oh, wow. on a uh, yes. I, I I wonder if there's an element of that going on in some of these cases too. Um, but nonetheless, let's say George Burroughs isn't, didn't abuse his wife, um, because there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's all their testimony that he wasn't, uh, was a good guy. And like I said, there's evidence of other people that there was. So if we did, we might have it. But anyway, uh, Burroughs, he's also, um, the men when they're accusing him of being a witch say, keep talking about how strong he is. So yeah. he can lift up a fucking rifle with one hand. That's that a, I, that's not just him. Also, that's I've, you hear that in like a number of uh, like men who are accused of witchcraft in the Americas is that they can lift a, a musket with one finger. Right. <laughs> it's just like it's the thing that's always present. That's and, heavy. And Burroughs is like, well, there was an Indian there that could do it too, and that was the wrong thing to say <laughs> yeah, yeah. because Mather interprets that as, oh, he means a, a, the devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this uh, is this Indian's name, Satan. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then uh, Burroughs uh, also was apparently able to lift a giant maple uh, um, barrel. Uh, and so he's just a big, strong guy. And yeah. that's a, a sign of being a witch. And uh, yeah, a whole barrel of molasses. And yeah, everyone's like, yeah, that Indian knew the devil. So yeah. <laughs> um, he, I've heard enough. Kill him, kill him. And so Increase Mather was at the trial for uh, Burroughs. 
And after uh, the tr- the witch trials were sort of over, and there's some damage control spin being done by the by the Mathers, uh, he did confirm that like I would have said he was guilty too. I would have hung him. He's definitely a witch. Uh, and the problem was when Burroughs was hung on uh, do I have that date? August nineteenth. Uh, despite a petition and his reputation. He perfectly recited the Lord's Prayer. Which you can't, supposedly you cannot do yep. if you're possessed um, or, or a witch. Yeah, and uh, the younger Mather, Cotton, was apparently there. And he said, uh, disregard what he just did, everybody. Don't have any second thoughts. We're still going to hang him because we don't use this type of nonsense, you know, superstitious test. And also, yeah. remember when we did the touch test on him? He failed that and the touch test means like if I accuse Alex of being a witch, I'm going to be freaking out until the court makes Alex touch me. And once he touches me, my freak out magically disappears. And that's one of the way the uh, accusers bullshitted about, yeah. um, you know. It's like the DNA of 17th century. Yeah, it was based on Cartesian philosophy, yep. um, they thought. So it, it's perfect science. Yeah. <laughs> if, if their fits stop when the person touches them, I mean... There it's you open go. and shut. I don't know what, what other evidence you could possibly use. Yeah, so uh, so, and so Mather's like, hang him still. And he, he gets hung. So, I mean, a very interesting little case study there. You know, especially the perfect recitation. I often like to emphasize, you know, I, I want it to be a rhetoric uh professor when i was an undergrad oh really and then you you come to find that how rhetoric is basically just a mask and it might be interesting to study as that um but it doesn't really power of and position is much more important yeah so it doesn't matter that george burroughs perfectly recited this He's still going to get killed because he we can't let him challenge the puritan state like that yeah the track's already laid Oh, uh, you know, uh, to double back of other theories of what's going on, a lot of people mention waking up in the middle of the night and having a figure of one of the witches on their stomach. Yeah. What's very clear... Uh, what's very clearly going on there is the same thing that's going on when people say they wake up and aliens are on top of them in their room yeah. uh, or the incubus and succubus. It's sleep paralysis, which is what happens when you often sleep on your back. Uh, that happens to me when I sleep on my back. I'd say one in, once a month maybe. I sleep on my back all the time now. It affects about uh, 10% of the population. Yeah. So it's pretty common. Yeah, I would, I'd imagine a lot of people listening to this have, have had this experience. Me, um, I've had it a few times. One more very vividly when I was living in Fargo, uh, I woke up like uh, I'd been sleeping maybe an hour or so. I woke up, uh, could not move, and I... And I'd heard about sleep paralysis before. And I think this has happened to me before, but this is the first time it happened to me since I was consciousness of uh, what was going on, hypnagogic sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look into the corner of the room where the curtains are, and the curtains had morphed into a giant man yeah. uh, that who went from floor to ceiling. Uh, and his head was like a very amorphous thing. I couldn't really see, but there's a lot of movement there. I struggled to move i couldn't for a while and then finally i busted out of it and moved and then i you know looked in my room and it's just the curtains um but what's happening there is uh the part of your brain that kicks in during uh sleep to make you not act out your dreams like run away from a bear or something Mm -hmm. 
is still active even though you're semi alert and awake and that part that causes you from moving also causes you to have these hallucinatory dreams so and you can project that onto the real world and it's very clear that you know once that's another thing like Tourette's is how you interpret that in the context of a Puritan uh, world that thinks the world's coming to an end because you have all these Indian wars, you have these mer- this mercantilism that you don't understand. Uh, you're going to interpret that uh, darkly. Especially again, in a uh, Puritan social context where it's hard to, it's hard to, I mean, we kind of understand that today, but try to imagine that everyone's personal problem is the community's problem. Mm-hmm. And it has cosmic implications too. Then, like in some ways, they were quite what we would like consider advanced. Like for like child abuse, for example, if you were caught abusing your child in the Puritan society, your uh, child was taken away from you, and they became like a ward of the small community, and that's it. But it's the same thing where it's like if Terrence or if Matt or whoever had a nightmare yesterday a mile away. And he saw the devil like that's a big fucking problem for all of us. Yeah. And that's something that's like that's not that's not like, well, maybe it was weird. Like that's something that we have need to deal with in court right away. Yeah, because witchcraft became a criminal. Yeah. Uh, so he basically has committed a crime. Yeah. There's a crime that's happened here. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um I think uh, I think now we can move to the part that uh, I was most interested to learn about, which is very well covered in an excellent chapter that we're going to really pl- uh, pull from in this next uh, final portion uh, in Emerson Baker's *The Storm of Witch*, *A Storm of Witchcraft*, um, about the cover-up, because as we talked about earlier, uh, uh, um, Massachusetts lost its charter in 1684, and Increase Mather and uh, Phipps was Cotton Mather over there too. Yes. Uh, we're over there negotiating for a new charter. They finally get it, and they come back, and all this witchcraft shit is going on. And <laughs> Extremely bad timing. Like on the, yeah, the, on our worst behavior, yeah. as Drake would say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they're like, oh, shit. We've, we've just killed... 19 people off the end of a rope in a town of 600 yeah of and some of the most like and well-respected people too it wasn't just like the first few people were um you know beggars um yeah. tatuba was a slave uh, she obviously she wasn't killed because she was too useful as a uh as an informant oh and arrested so many like hundreds yeah and the thing about being arrested is you're charged for that. That's not on the state's dime. Yeah. So there's going to be fees, and until you can pay those fees, you're not going to let out. Um, so, uh, for instance, Samuel Paris wouldn't pay Tatuba's uh, fees at the end of the thing. Um, but the conditions are just horrible. There's like three different prisons, but they're, you know, just filth and muck, like hell on earth. Well, at least a couple women died in prison. The fact, I think the first death was someone who died in prison, right? Yes, I think that's right, yeah. And also a four-year-old, Dorcas Good, uh, who is Sarah Good's daughter, is arrested and kept there for, like, over a year. Yeah. Like, fucking ice level. Like, bullshit. Well, yeah, it did. that definitely did remind me of when Absolutely. Ice, ice puts those four or five-year-olds on trial. A hundred percent, the witchcraft paranoia is mappable onto uh, fear of so-called uh illegal immigrants well i mean yeah i mean that's to me you know you don't always want to just be like this is interesting because it uh maps on to today 
But if you're talking about a group that is paranoid about losing power. Yep. And then lashes out at what they perceive as like the elites by going after people who they think are near the elites. Mm -hmm. Like it's the same story only on a much, much larger scale. Yeah, because I don't know how many I don't know how many people have died in ICE custody now. I, I think somewhere like uh, like thirty or something. Well, I don't think we're given good information. Yeah, we don't it. know anymore. But I, I the there's this. Let me see if I can get it really quick. There's this author, um, uh, uh, Roberto Caleso, who's just written this book called um, uh, "The Unnameable Present." And there's this line I was reading while I was reading this stuff that really spoke to me, which is, there are some forms that don't die out. They change. They become filled and emptied uh. of meaning according to the circumstances. But one subtle thread always binds them to their origin. And that's a really great way to look at history when you you see events and it's like the circumstances are different and maybe the scale is different, but there's some germ that manages to survive and mutates and to fit its surprises. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, Cuz it is like forms and archetypes almost. Yeah. Um I mean even the uh, uh fear of possession by Satan uh um parallels uh the uh, captivity narratives that we're talking about with the Native Americans earlier that oh, the most popular uh, you know scenarios and, and you know signing the devil's black book uh, is maps directly onto at the time, you know, signing deeds to lands and things like that. Yeah, I don't. I think it. It. it I think it's a storm of witchcraft that brings it up that a lot of the the visions that, that they're getting of the devil, uh, uniquely can or coincidentally can map onto property exchanges that have been going on, uh, throughout the colonial world. All right, so now we're going to move back to Emerson Baker. He'll bring us home. We'll get the uh, the first cover-up of significance in American history that was pretended to or intended to preserve the theocracy of the Puritans, but ultimately, ultimately discredited them. You can definitely see why Hawthorne is so obsessed with this period besides being uh, intimately related because it falls right into his theory of... Oh, sorry. You're good. It, it falls right into his theory of... Uh, no progress is possible. Like every time that people try to advance progress, the opposite uh, occurs. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, I will say, I don't want to get into it too much, but his dad is a, or not dad, his ancestor <laughs> here is a fucking major asshole. Yeah, really nasty. Like one of nasty, the worst, nasty uh, his questioning, he's the sort of lead questioner, especially initially. You know, things like, uh, you know, the woman would say like, uh, um, uh, I know I'm not a witch, and I'm not, I don't even know what witches are. And Mather's like, how do you know you're not a... Or not Mather, uh, um, um, Haythorn, uh, how do you know you're not a witch if you don't know what witches are? Yeah. Uh, like, that sort of shit. Yeah. It's a lot of fuck... Yeah, it's a lot of, like... Um Ah, I can't think it's it's leading it's uh what not is it leading questions like uh when's the last time you hit your wife? He's like, which devil are you working for? Yeah, yeah. When did you stop working for the devil? Yeah, and. Oh my god. Literary fun fact also for Haythorn is that someone who helped round up witches to go before Haythorn was a guy named Ezekiel Cheever, who is, if you know John Cheever, that's his ancestor. Oh wow. So they they were in the same room multiple times. The one of the greatest writers of the nineteenth century 
the ancestor of the greatest writer in the 19th century, one of the great, the ancestor of the greatest writer in the 20th century in the same room condemning and killing women. So good to think about both Harvard grads also. Yeah. Harvard. I mean, that explains it. (laughs) Mystery solved. How is this coincidence? Oh, they both went to Harvard. Yeah. Right. On October 12th, 1692, governor Sir William Phipps wrote to William Blathwaite, the clerk of the privy council to inform him of the witchcraft crisis. Phipps deflected blame for the affair, misleadingly claiming that he had missed most of the trials, for he was almost the whole time of the proceeding abroad, building forts and trying to win the war in Maine. He had left the colony and the trials in the hands of Deputy Governor Stoughton and depended upon the judgment of the court as to a right method of proceeding in cases of witchcraft. What he came home to find, however, was many persons in a strange ferment of dissatisfaction and some people in jail who were doubtless innocent and to my certain knowledge of good reputation. He was therefore going to stop further arrests and, to calm things down, ban any publications on the matter. We should uh, point out that one of those people he knows is a good person, despite being accused, is his wife. So <laughs> it's like, uh, you can accuse all your local... And, and powerful people were accused, although, you know, the more powerful you were, the more likely you were to like not be the one accused. But, uh, you know, Bradstreet's, um, uh, you know, relatives of uh, Anne... And and Bradstreet's brother-in-law, not from the same mother, um, but was significantly younger than him, uh, was accused. He had to flee, uh, mm-hmm. I believe. Like, um, it wasn't just. And, and obviously, I think generally, which trials were about, you know, the the beggar woman nearby. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, Phipps is like, uh, excuse me, like. <laughs> No, yeah. I think you're mistaken, and and actually, even the the the, the uh, questioners were like, "You're mistaken. You, you're going to leave the courtroom now and think about that a little bit." Um, it was a real Rubicon moment when uh, a Puritan minister was accused. I forget. Was it Burroughs? Burroughs, right? Yeah. yeah. When and because we yeah, without getting into too much detail, but like Paris was like, "Oh no, he's probably a witch too." Which I think was really responsible for, like, yeah, this could get com- this is completely out of control. Yeah, because there, there's all these like, there's all these like, in their own um, culture, these like uh, stop gaps where it's like, well, we can't go any further than this, right? And they kept throwing like, they kept throwing them up, being like, no, no, like they're like, like the the call is coming from in the house, well, like evil is everywhere. Another uh, another earlier Rubicon is a uh, uh, Rebecca Nurse, yeah, who was a member of the church, yeah. And it's like, if a member of the church, and that's another thing about, you know, Paris, and I don't want to, you know, talk about too much, but let's just touch on a little bit. Paris basically goes through this, um, uh, uh, accelerated understand, uh, it comes to an accelerated understanding of the place of the Puritan church and the end of Puritan purity, basically. Yeah. So like, you go from this, a thing of like, I'm, we're going to change the world into this, um, you know, Puritan vision to, we have sanctuary within our church uh, from the devils outside. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's like, fuck, some devils are going to get the in, The devils guys. are in here, like, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Phipps is like, um, my wife is accused we're, we're done with this. And also, uh, nobody can write about this. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then he commissions, commissions uh, Cotton Mather to do the spin for it, basically. Two months later, on October 8th, Thomas Brattle wrote his letter which was addressed to an unnamed Reverend Sir, but which was intended to be circulated publicly, um, sir. containing a comprehensive assault on the witch trials, done in the scholarly and scientific manner befitting a Harvard graduate who had worked with Robert Boyle. Harvard. Like his contemporaries, Brattle believed in the existence of the devil and witches, 
but questioned the use of spectral evidence and the touch test. An observer of some of the trials, he was convinced that evil spirits deluded the confessing witches, and he noted that the confessors often contradicted themselves. Brattle pointed out the special treatment of some of the accused. Why did the court not pursue fugitives such as the Englishes and John Alden, he wondered. Why was Hezekiah Usher allowed to be under house arrest and then allowed to flee? If he may be suffered to go away, why may not others? If others may not be suffered to go, how in justice can he be allowed herein? While noting that there was still some support for the trials, Brattle documented the growing unrest in Massachusetts with the proceedings. And this is a quote. The Honorable Simon Bradstreet, Esquire, our late governor. The Honorable Thomas Danforth, Esquire, our late deputy governor. The Reverend Mr. Increase Mather and the Reverend Mr. Samuel Willard. Major N. Saltonstall, Esquire, who was one of the judges, has left the court and is very much dissatisfied with the proceedings of it. Excepting Mr. Hale, Mr. Noyes, and Mr. Paris, the Reverend Elders, almost throughout the whole country, are very much dissatisfied. Several of the late justices, viz. Thomas Graves, Esquire, N. Byfield, Esquire, Francis Foxcroft, Esquire, are much dissatisfied. Also, several of the present justices, and in particular some of the Boston justices, were resolved rather to throw up their commissions than be active in disturbing the liberty of their majesty's subjects merely on the accusations of these afflicted, possessed children. Yeah, and it's Amid true, this growing clamor for the... Uh, Judge Saltonstall resigned after the first uh, hanging of uh, Bridget Bishop, uh, and he wasn't happy with how it went. ...trials to end and questioning their methods. Only Cotton Mather's The Wonders of the Invisible World defended the actions of the government. The book was written quickly and rushed into print to try to buttress the government by endorsing the actions of the judges. Though some of the judges' methods might be disputed, the younger Mather insisted, there was still clear precedent for their actions. To prove this point, he discussed at length the influential writings of Gaul and other English witchcraft experts. He also cited recent precedent for executions by discussing two relatively recent outbreaks in Europe. In 1662, the Barry St. Edmunds trials resulted in the conviction and execution of two elderly widows from Lowestoft, Suffolk, on 13 counts of witchcraft. In these trials, spectral evidence had been accepted by no less an authority than the eminent judge and chief justice of the King's Bench, Sir Matthew Hale. Mather also cited the trials in Mora, Sweden, in 1669-1670, which bore a strong resemblance to those in Salem. The younger Mather wrote the book at the request of Governor Phipps, so he had the active support of the judges and worked with court clerk Stephen Sewell to get access to all the trial transcripts. Yet his book focuses on just five of the nineteen executed. Officials insisted that he include George Burroughs, to which Cotton added Bridget Bishop, Martha Carrier, Elizabeth Howe, and Susanna Martin. Mather chose these cases with great care and as part of an effort to defend the use of spectral evidence. All had been accused of maleficium, harmful witchcraft, by numerous people, and all but Martin had been accused by confessed witches. Not only were these executions among the least controversial, but they relied far less on spectral evidence than other Salem trials. Thus, Mather minimized the impact of spectral evidence. He was also selective even in his discussion of these cases. For example, he failed to mention Elizabeth Howe's supporters, including Deborah Hadley, who had known Elizabeth for twenty-four years and found her a neighborly woman conscientious in her dealing, faithful to her missus, and Christian-like in her conversation. And, of course, Mather did not mention at all the more controversial cases, such as Rebecca Nurse's. At the time, the 29-year-old Cotton Mather was at the peak of his career, one that had started out with incredible promise. He graduated at 15 from Harvard, the youngest in its history, and was a brilliant intellect who would eventually master seven languages. At 18, he received his master's and became the assistant pastor at his father's North Church. In 1685, at 22, he was ordained as minister of North Church, sharing duties with his father, who now officially moved to the position of teacher.
As partner and intellectual heir of his father, Cotton had already published widely and was poised to be the next great Puritan theologian. Yet with its selective use of the evidence, the wonders of the invisible world severely damaged the reputation of one of the last standard-bearers of American Puritanism, and with him the cause itself. Why, then, did Cotton Mather write his book? And, in particular, why did he defend the use of spectral evidence when earlier he had urged caution in its use, such as when writing to John Richards and composing for all the judges the return of several ministers consulted? The answer is that the witchcraft outbreak had blossomed into a political crisis and Governor Phipps, as well as Deputy Governor Stoughton and the rest of the witchcraft judges, who were all also members of the governor's council, needed Cotton to carry out spin control. Despite his earlier efforts at moderation, the younger Mather was now willing to compromise his beliefs because he had become convinced that the fate of Puritan colony itself was at stake. Mather's gloss was needed to protect the fragile administration of Phipps, a close political ally of the Mathers and a member of their church. Phipps and Increase Mather had arrived in Boston from London only the previous May to commence the government under Massachusetts' new royal charter of 1691. No one knew what might happen if Phipps's government failed. Perhaps Andros or some other military governor might return, again threatening the liberties of the colony and its Puritan church. With Massachusetts beset with internal political division and locked in a desperate military struggle with the French and their native allies, a public acknowledgment that the judicial system had wrongly executed 19 people pressed to death another, and imprisoned well over a hundred more, would have brought down the new government and threatened the existence of the city upon a hill. Cotton acknowledged in wonders, I have indeed set myself to countermine the whole plot of the devil against New England, in every branch of it, and he believed that the witchcraft outbreak was part of a process that might bring the Puritan experiment to an end. Regardless, Governor Phipps had what he needed to defend the witch trials and bring the court of Oyer and Terminer to an end. With The Wonders of the Invisible World now published, he could call for a ban on future publications and squelch any further questioning of the judges or the government. A copy of the book traveled to London on the same ship that carried Phipps's letter to Blathwaite about the ban. To avoid any confusion about its status in regard to the prohibition, the reverse of the title page of Wonders announced that it had been published by the special command of His Excellency, the Governor of the Province of the Massachusetts Bay in New England. And uh, thus, the relationship between power and authorship is illustrated very clearly about, you know, the truthfulness and the, the social responsibility of that work. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can tell he wanted to tell the truth, but so much was at stake. The state itself was at stake, which, you know, and not the women. They weren't at stake. But Yeah, not, uh, you know, uh, their necks no. um, of innocent people. Good thing there's no more lying. Uh, yeah. For, you know, self and state preservation going on now. Um, here's a bit more. And a few more clips here. Doton, so that he could focus his efforts on the military crisis and the challenge of passing a new legal code through as soft on witchcraft. Nor did he want to be particularly close to it. He was happy to turn the proceedings over to Deputy Governor Stoughton so that he could focus his efforts on the military crisis and the challenge of passing a new legal code through a legislature that was increasingly divided. Despite spending five or six weeks in Maine leading the war effort in the late summer and fall, Phipps was present in Boston during all of the meetings of the Court of Oyer and Terminer, except for its September session. He could have played a much more active role in the proceedings had he wanted to, but he even turned over the authority to sign the death warrants to Stoughton. Not only did Phipps avoid the proceedings, but when he first reported the witchcraft outbreak to the Crown, he dissembled about his whereabouts, suggesting he had been off in Maine and shocked upon his return to find what a poor job Stoughton had done in his absence. <laughs> By lying to his superiors in London, 
and by commissioning Cotton Mather's whitewash of the affair and then immediately imposing a publication's ban. Phipps was following public opinion. While even educated people still believed that witches were real, most were becoming increasingly convinced that some innocent people had died. This was greater than a moral outrage. It was a doctrinal corruption. According to Puritan theology, someone who commits a sin must confess it before God. The state's sin should have been acknowledged publicly. Failure to do so jeopardized the Puritan's special covenant with God, and indeed the very foundation of their belief. It was an open invitation to bring down God's wrath on individuals and the entire colony. Yet admitting to the commission of sin would lead to equally dire consequences. If the state acknowledged the wrongful death or imprisonment of more than 150 innocent citizens, the new government would lose all authority. The king would be forced to recall Governor Phipps. The charter could be lost. And all right, and uh, and so yeah, uh, Phipps, uh, who uh, was basically self-made, and the way he mainly made himself was he found a, sh a Spanish shipwreck off the American coast uh, worth the modern equivalent of twenty million dollars. Yep. Uh, which is pretty self-made man baller. <laughs> um, uh, and also, you know, uh, it, it mentions early in that clip, um, what, what it's hinting at is why he doesn't want to appear soft on witchcraft is because, uh, having witch powers would be a good way to find a shipwreck, for instance, yeah. uh, to div divine it. Um, and also he had connections with a lot of, um, trading connections and that sort of thing. It, it puts you under suspicion. um, uh, but so yeah, he he after uh, Cotton Mather does his whitewash, um, um, Phipps uh, is like, no more. We got the last word on that out. Nobody needs to talk about it. Let's move on. And he shadow bans. Oh, no, he does more than that. Uh, he bans uh, discussion of um, the witch trials, and that is eventually broken. And we're gonna uh, just get into the uh, free speech uh, element of this a little bit. Um, and here, uh, this is a Quaker with the last name of Maul, which uh, you would recognize from uh, the House of the Seven Gables. Uh, I think probably as assume Hawthorne is referencing this figure. Um, that's Matthew Maul. This is um, this is Thomas Maul, um, but he is a Quaker who initially like was some maybe somewhat uh, in on the witch trials or like wasn't an in initial skeptic. Uh, and then, but later, uh, became one, and he was the first person to break, uh, Phipps's, uh, ban on Salem witch trial stuff. Nor does Maul mention the bewitchment of his child anywhere in his writings. Given his later opposition to the trials, such an omission is not surprising. Maul also makes no mention of Samuel Paris by name in his book, though the two men's lives followed a similar path. Both were born in England, spent part of their youth in Barbados, moved to Boston, and finally settled in Salem. It is unlikely the two had ever met in Barbados, for Maul was eight years older than Paris, and their time on the island overlapped only briefly. Yet Maul would have known Paris's type, a wealthy and privileged Puritan plantation owner. The Quaker must have been predisposed to dislike the minister. Despite Maul's initial willingness to accuse someone of witchcraft, he quickly became a critic of the witch trials. In the fall of 1695 he published Truth Held Forth and Maintained According to the Testimony of the Holy Prophets Christ and His Apostles, recorded in the Holy Scriptures a description and defense of Quaker theological tenets and practices. It was also a stern denunciation of Massachusetts Puritan practices, particularly the cruel treatment Quakers suffered at their hands. A significant portion of the book attacks the government's handling of the Salem witch trials. Although the criticism is restricted to just one out of the 38 chapters of the book, it is by far the longest, more than 12% of the book. Maul saw the witch trials as God's punishment of Massachusetts for its sins, and chiefly its harsh treatment of Quakers. 
A recurring theme of the book is the execution of the four Quaker missionaries by Massachusetts Bay. Not satisfied with particulars, Maul attacked the very nature of Puritanism, blaming the colony's problems on those who consented to the rule of the priests and worshipped God the wrong way, that is, as a Puritan and not a Quaker. It was a truly courageous act for Maul to print this book under his own name and distribute it, for he did it in open opposition to the ban. In the three years since Governor Phipps had issued it, no one in Massachusetts had dared publish anything on the trials. Even those who criticized the proceedings before the ban had kept these works in manuscript or published them anonymously. No Massachusetts printer would undertake the printing, so Maul's book was published by William Bradford in New York, for the printer had moved there from Philadelphia in 1693. On December 12, 1695, Lieutenant Governor Stoughton, acting governor since Sir William Phipps's death, and his counsel issued a warrant for Maul's arrest. The complaint against Maul indicates the ban was still in effect, for the first charge noted in the warrant is that he published without license of authority. <laughs> Furthermore, he had written many notorious and wicked lies and slanders not only upon private persons, but upon government, and also divers corrupt and pernicious doctrines utterly subversive of the true Christian and professed faith. The council also ordered a search for all copies of the book. Two days later, Chef George Corwin arrested Maul and seized and burned 31 copies of his book. So yeah, Corwin, Corwin and Stoughton very uh, uh, involved, some of the leaders in the uh, trials. On May 3, 1696, at the Superior Court's spring session in Ipswich, Maul had an angry confrontation with the judges who bound him over for trial at the fall session of the court. He would remain in prison until that session, held in Salem five months later, on November 11, 1696. Anyway, Maul gets off. He, they let him yep. off, uh, which is a sign of the weakening uh, Puritan uh, uh, stranglehold on society. Um, and... And uh, the big sign of that, Ann Putnam Jr. later confesses um, or says sorry. She doesn't confess wholly um, under the basically through Joseph Green, who replaces Paris ultimately as the minister of Salem after all the witch trials. And he's able to reconcile a lot of that. But then uh, Sewell, there's, we get Sewell's apology. And uh, that's where, and he was uh, one of the judges uh, that was responsible for sending people to the deaths. And actually, he was the richest one of them. He was super wealthy, this guy. Um, Sewell is a name that we'll see throughout American history. I think mm -hmm. there's, isn't there Sewell in Lincoln's cabinet? Yes. Um, and, uh, and, but he apologizes in uh, a very, as, as, far, as far as, you know, elite accountability goes. This is uh, in the annals of it. So... The general court would soon issue a long overdue apology for the witch trials, but the process would add to the political tensions. On December 2nd, 1696, the House of Representatives passed a bill for a day of fasting and reformation, and went so far as to order 500 copies of the proclamation written by Cotton Mather to be printed. However, the council took offense on several counts. First, the document had been written without their consultation. Second, the focus of the document was not on witchcraft. Rather, it was another call for moral reformation one that described a range of evils, including uncleanness, excessive drinking, vanity of dress, decay of family discipline, fraud, piracy, and even unrighteous discouragement of the magistrates and ministers of the colony. So again, Mather's given the responsibility of writing a sort of apology for the court, and it's basically, uh, you know, telling people to get their own acts together. Yeah. And Sue was like, this isn't going to cut it. Yeah, I'm sorry about everything, like about how society is completely decayed because of all of you. Yeah. I'm sorry that, uh, you know, your covetousness made our court, you know, hang 19 people. Yeah. Witchcraft was hidden within this laundry list of concerns. Wicked sorceries have been practiced in the land and in the late inexplicable storms from the invisible world thereby brought upon us, 
we were left by the just hand of heaven unto those errors whereby great hardships were brought upon innocent persons, and we fear guilt incurred, which we mistakes were made. Have all cause to bewail with much confusion of our face before the Lord. Mather continued to minimize the sin of witchcraft, as he had in Wonders of the Invisible World. He could not even admit outright guilt for a miscarriage of justice, but had to qualify it by saying, parenthetically, we fear guilt incurred. Moreover, Matthew insisted on blaming the outbreak on the wicked sorceries, white magic such as fortune-telling and even Mary Sibley's witch cake. Finally, the House had added to Mather's draft an exhortation to the magistrates to do a better job in prosecuting all offenders and to dispense justice equitably. As the members of the Council were also the justices of the colony, this was an unacceptable slap in the face, another sign of the political tensions in the general court. The Council passed its own version of a proclamation, authored by Samuel Sewell. Eventually, the House and Council would agree on Sewell's draft with some minor edits. While Mather had buried the witch trials amid a list of sins that needed forgiveness, Sewell focused on witchcraft. And especially that whatever mistakes on either hand have been fallen into, either by the body of this people or any orders of men, referring to the late tragedy raised among us by Satan and his instruments, through the awful judgment of God. He would humble us, therefore, and pardon all the errors of his servants and people that desire to love his and be atoned to his land. Sewell's wife had miscarried that past spring, and December 23rd their infant daughter Sarah died. The next day, as the family mourned, his son recited to him part of Matthew 12. Sewell remarked that the seventh verse did awfully bring to mind the Salem tragedy. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Sewell's mind was troubled from the misfortunes that beset his family. Maul's recent trial would have been a very real reminder of the witch trials, and the Quaker's verdict affirmed that he and the other judges had erred in 1692. Sewell was now convinced that God was punishing not only the colony, but him personally, for the execution of innocent victims. Thanks in part to Maul, he now knew something must be done. During the fast day service, Sewell gave Reverend Willard a letter to read to the congregation. Sewell stood before the congregation as the minister read what has come to be known as Sewell's Apology. This is good. Samuel Sewell, sensible of the reiterated strokes of God upon himself and family, and being sensible that as to the guilt contracted upon the opening of the late commission of Oyer and Terminer at Salem, to which the order for this day relates, he is, upon many accounts, more concerned than any that he knows of, desires to take the blame and shame of it, asking pardon of men, and especially desiring prayers that God, who has an unlimited authority, would pardon that sin and all other his sins. It was a breathtaking act of courage, piety, and humility, for one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in the colony to take responsibility for his actions and openly admit what some refused to accept and others had only hinted at. Sewell never seems to have fully forgiven himself for his involvement in the trials. According to family tradition, it was about this time that he began to wear a hair shirt. Sewell would wear this undergarment for the rest of his life. By making such a public apology, Sewell immediately made a serious enemy of William Stoughton, now, of course, acting governor of the colony. To the day he died, in 1701, Stoughton remained firm in his belief that the witchcraft court had acted properly, indeed that it had saved the colony by convicting and executing the witches. And apparently he never forgave Sewell. A year later, Stoughton snubbed Sewell when he invited all the other members of the council to a dinner party at his house. Damn. Stoughton's high office and his view of the trials probably kept more people from following Sewell's example. Yeah, damn. It's like maintaining the Iraq war was the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, if you... If you say that the torture was wrong, you're probably not going to go to as many dinner parties in D.C. Yeah, and uh, so the final uh, uh, um, sort of break in the chain uh, 
to that. Um, you know, you have the mall writing, then you have Sewell's apology. That leads to awesome fellow by the name of Robert Califf, who uh, comes to write. You know, Cotton Mather wrote Wonders of the Invisible World. Uh, uh, Robert Califf decides to write more Wonders of the Invisible World and nice. shit all over uh, Cotton Mather. Here's some. I love Califf. I love his energy. He's a hero. Uh, here's some of uh, him, the last couple play. After Stoughton's death, and two years after Hale himself had passed away, Maul's trial and the fast day led Robert Califf, a Boston cloth merchant who had observed some of the witch trial proceedings, to write an account of the trials that would have particularly long-lasting influence. Califf was a friend of Maul's and had posted bond for him when he was arrested for writing Truth Held Forth in 1695. An Anglican, Califf had migrated to New England during the Dominion of New England, a time of religious toleration. By August 1697, Califf had completed his manuscript. Its publication was delayed until 1700, however, as his attack on the proceedings in general, and Cotton Mather in particular, was so scathing that no one in Boston was willing to undertake the printing, which had to be done in London. As the title suggests, More Wonders of the Invisible World took direct aim at Mather and his Wonders of the Invisible World. Awesome. Since at least 1693, Califf had been engaged in an ongoing dispute with the Mathers over witchcraft, in September of that year, he had traveled to Salem to observe Cotton Mather's efforts to heal young Margaret Rule, yet another Maine refugee who was exhibiting signs of affliction similar to what had been seen in Salem the year before. Caliph wrote down an account of what he observed that night. He suggested that Rule was a fraud and implied that Mather had inappropriately rubbed her breast and naked belly in an effort to heal her affliction by means of laying on of hands. Then Caliph circulated his account to friends. Damn. Mather became infuriated when he heard this story, accusing Caliph of lying and charging him with slander. The men exchanged a series of angry letters, where it became clear that Caliph had taken liberties in his account in an effort to bait Mather. He's a troll. Amazingly, before Caliph published his book, he first published Cotton Mather's manuscript account of Margaret Rule's affliction, followed by his exchange of letters with Mather. After this inflammatory start, Caliph went on to reprint Wonders of the Invisible World, along with his own history of the trial, largely a rebuttal of Mather. Caliph saw the trials as a conspiracy of the ministers and the government, a zeal governed by blindness and passion, led by increased Mather, had precipitated us into far greater wickedness, if not witchcrafts, than any have been yet proved against those that suffered. He believed that the afflicted girls and their families had been frauds who deliberately made their accusations for personal gain and to harm their enemies. Caliph's anger shows through in the satirical edge to his writing. The book is far from measured and reasoned. Cotton Mather complained bitterly about this vile volume consisting of an abominable bundle of lies written to vilify me and render me incapable to glory the Lord Jesus Christ. One can imagine the Mather's outrage at the accusation that they had conspired with Governor Phipps to manipulate the outbreak, especially considering that Lady Mary Phipps and Mariah Mather had been cried out upon. Increase showed his disdain by having a copy of the book burned in Harvard Yard. For all its faults, Caliph's book clearly demonstrated the younger Mather's duplicity in defending the government in wonders of the invisible world. Caliph pointed out that when the trials began, Mather was one of the ministers who had urged caution in the use of spectral evidence, yet a year later defended the judges for their actions. Essentially, Caliph threw mud at Mather, and by extension the witchcraft judges and the government of Massachusetts, and it contained enough truth to stick. Caliph's work helped expose the cover-up. Yeah, so shout out to Robert Califf there. Um, uh, a, a historian, I'm not sure if I have the reference uh, here. 
Uh, historian Samuel Elliot Morrison famously said, Robert Califf, who had it in for Cotton Mather, tied a tin can to him after the frenzy was over, and it rattled and banged through the pages of superficial and popular historians. <laughs> like, um, and, and like I said, the Califf was, uh, you know, he was... He thought all of the accusers were like harlots, basically, and mm-hmm. liars. And I think we have a bit more. I think some of them were liars, uh, but I think all, uh, like the hysteria and the PTSD and all that stuff uh, definitely plays into it well. But he uh, was not afraid to go at the Mather and yeah. uh, took him down. Well, yeah, I think it 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 only further displays the the shift that had occurred in the uh uh colonial culture at that time where all of a sudden there's this person throwing out uh evidence upon evidence of what had actually happened being like and and mocking someone for suggesting that you know the the unseen world is responsible for this yeah um do you want to talk about some of the one of the spookier instances we teased earlier um the uh, blood to drink oh yeah yeah we keep circling around this story because it is it's a good one. <laughs> it's crazy. And this is by tradition. I haven't seen the solid evidence that proves this, but it seems true. So um, this is from a Storm of Witchcraft, of page 32. And uh, so Sarah Good, one of the... Um, Sarah's Good and Osborne were the first two women accused. And uh, and Sarah Good told uh, Salem Town's junior minister, Nicholas Noyes. Noyes gave Sarah one last chance to confess that she was a witch, uh, so that she would at least not die a liar. And she says, you are a liar. I am no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Now, we mentioned, I think, in one episode that that was said to uh, Hawthorne's father. And there's a tradition that it mm-hmm. was, but it was to Noyes. Um, uh, although it very well could have been to Hawthorne, because Hawthorne was a fucking awful questioner himself. Um, so, I mean, yeah. it's possible sp- he was in the room. Exactly. Too. Like, the spirit of it was meant for all those guys, yeah. right? Um, and I'll just say, uh, the, the end of that story there. Um, yeah, good drew her last words from the Bible, specifically revelation sixteen six. during the apocalypse, God punished sinners through seven final plagues. The third of which turned all the rivers and springs of water into blood, uh, for they shed the blood of the saints and prophets. And therefore thou hast given them blood to drink. After Sarah's final words, the executions took place without further incident, though uh, people remembered Good's curse years later when Noyes suffered an internal hemorrhage, leaving him to die choking on his own blood. Yeah, it doesn't actually cite w- how we know that he choked on his own blood uh, there, but that's what, I mean, I think uh, uh, Emerson Baker shows skepticism of a lot of different narratives. For instance, that the uh, girls... Uh, involved were practiced witchcraft beforehand. There's not a yeah. super abundance of evidence of that. That's something in Salem possessed that they had taken as a given. Yeah. That that the it's putting an I think it's putting an egg shell in a small bowl of water, right? And that's like the, their form of like a crystal ball. They can see images into the future or a glass. Yeah. And yeah. I think that did happen, but it wasn't like the Paris girls. And yeah. like that's the only thing that there's any evidence for, and that might not even happen. But basically, the 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 folk witchcraft was yeah you break an egg into a glass and then look at the way the the white or the yolk i'm not sure i think it's the white yeah and in this story uh it was a coffin um but uh i think we uh we covered a lot of the good context for the salem witch trials there i mean the end of uh the puritan theocracy the rise of mercantile capitalism 
anything else you want to mention, Alex? Um, well, in the name of context, you want me to, I can go over uh, which trials in Europe. Yeah, sure. If we, we'll kind of we'll zigzag through time here uh, quick. But um, when you think of this is so the Salem witch trials would have been probably the last big gasp of uh, popular witch trials in um, North American and European history. Yep. But it's not something that was necessarily a, a mainstay of European history. In fact, when the Catholic Church was making its way out of Rome and into uh, Europe and Northern Europe in like 306, they had like a, a, a signed of um, Elvira that was basically saying, if you're caught practicing witchcraft, it's five years of penance. And <laughs> five years of penance is like very undefined. It's like, just relax yeah. for the most part. And we, Chill. Yeah. And like witchcraft is kind of is like interchangeable with being a pagan. There's not, there's nothing, there's not like you're casting spells or anything like that. They're like, if we catch you doing this, just don't. Yeah. And then by 785, there's the council of, uh, Paderborn, which is saying that, uh, if you're caught burning a witch to death, you die, you're out because this keeps happening. in like the, the pro witch lobby, yeah. right? That law. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like this, they keep, they're, they're trying to be this kind of like rationalizing force in the world because from their, their perspective, you know, like God has come back through Jesus Christ, and the idea that you could have get power through the devil is ridiculous to them because yeah. they're like, we already won this battle, so you can't get power from the devil. So now it's like these witch, these every one-off witch trials keep happening in like the seven hundreds in different European kingdoms, and they're like, like the, the Pope is basically like, listen, all right, if I catch you burning a witch, you're dead, you're out. Oh, there's a quote here from the Lombard Codes, which is a uh, law code in France, which is, quote, Let nobody presume to kill a foreign serving maid or female servant as a witch, for it is not possible nor ought to be believed by Christian minds. <laughs> yeah. And then in 866, the Catholic Church outlaws torture uh, completely. So there's no physical torture for anything at all. Um, although, I mean, this, the huge well, caveat a bunch is bunch of wusses. Yeah. That, what, they don't have a war on terror to win. <laughs> the caveat is this is happening all the time in, in Europe and even like executed by the Catholic church, but they're trying to be like, let's not do this. Right. Um, yeah. So fake it before you make it. Yeah. <laughs> so around like the 1200s, what we would call like the, the high medieval era, uh, there are essentially no pagans anymore. Uh, most of the European continent, with the exception of the Iberian Peninsula, has been is under like the uh, Christendom yoke. Um, but there's like the first offshoot of what we would now call Protestantism, Protestantism emerging out of France, and it's called the, the there's these groups called the uh, Cathars, Waldensians, and the Hussites. And it doesn't really matter what they're into, but there's this hyper educated for the time group that's saying, "Oh, like we've we went to." Um, the Sorbonne or we went to the uh, Oxford or whatever. And like, we actually don't need the liturgy of the Catholic church. We can just celebrate on our own. And the church had a big open source. Yeah. Church had a big problem with this. So they created what are called the friars, which I'm sure everyone knows about like the friars club. They do the roast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And the friars, like these are these hyper educated people that are going to meet like, cause the, the problem with that Cathars were so successful is that, they would debate priests in public and win. So they were like the, um, like the. They would own them with facts. And yeah, logic. yeah, I was about to say they're like the Ben Shapiro's being, well, actually, like if you look, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit or communion in the Bible. Uh, 
So the Catholic Church makes this new group of people, which are called the friars. And this is where like the problem comes in, because these are like hyper-educated people who go into urban centers in Europe, and they open up things which are called the Inquisition. And it's a way of getting people within Christendom to be like, you need to conform to our rules. And they essentially wipe all these people out. They even have a crusade in Europe, which most people, we don't really talk about. But one of the last crusades was just Europeans killing other Europeans. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't like the good one, whereas Europeans yeah. slaughtering Muslims. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so which, when, which we can all get behind. All the, all the Dave's Vault people on Twitter seem to forget that one, where the most successful one was just murdering Frenchmen. Yeah, it was just... This is just to make Europe for Europe. Yeah. So they, so these, these friars are extremely successful. Done. It's over. Unfortunately, this group still exists. So it's kind of like NATO where like, well, what do they do now? Mm-hmm. And all the friars, what they want. Mission wanna, creep. Yeah. They want to expand this inquisition, which is a group or which is a, uh, uh, um, an office that still exists. And they said, well, you know what the real problem is? It's witchcraft yeah. <laughs> because that's been, that's gone, that's gone completely under the radar for like 700 years. So there's three like major problems that happen, which are um, uh, the Hundred Years' War throws Europe into a uh, uh, cultural or a uh, like political disaster with uh, hundreds of thousands of people dead. The Black Death from 1347 to uh, 1351 kills about 75 million people. <laughs> and so uh, the medieval order had completely collapsed on itself. There's no outside problem anymore. They just took over everything and then it just bottomed out. Could have been witches, though. It's, uh, well, I'm glad you said that because there were a lot of people that said, you know what this is? That's what I thought. This is witches. It's that women. I mean, witches. So there was this. So with the reordering of Europe, all of a sudden there's this like there's the idea of like the state be- becomes like a viable option. And um there's like the in-group out-group mentality. And so they bring in all these friars to be like, we've got to get people into lockstep and like, and uh, the best way to do that for like, we're the French nation or we're the Holy Roman empire or we're the English nation is to get these witches out of here. So in the early 1400s, there's a, a rise of like witch burnings throughout Europe, but it's still one-offs. It's like everyone like in the town get together. We're going to kill this woman. She's a witch done 1428. It's, that's when the first like witch trial happens, which is in Valais. And it's, there's a, the last of like the Valdensians, which are those groups of like early Protestants. It's happening around then where the, the friars like, let's expand this out. Cause we think that there are witches here. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they find over 200 witches and kill them all, uh, in like a five year period. Mission accomplished. Yeah. So in 1450, the printing press is invented, and within 10 years of the printing press being invented, being invented, 15 books on witchcraft <laughs> come out. Oh man, what's the damn? What was like big on the internet? Like, it would be like 9/11 conspiracy, yeah, 9/11 like conspiracy. web pages. Yeah, um, that's cr- that's hilarious. <laughs> like, the only like non-Bible like literature basically yeah. seems like witch books. So the Catholic Church is freaking out about this because they're like, this is getting a little out of hand. And woodcuts are also invented, which is the first mast form uh, like art because it's it's a it's oh, like right. an, it's indentation, and then you just copy it hundreds yeah. of times. And like the the black cat, the the uh, black cat that's with it, the and the witch's broom all come from this period because uh. they just print these books as fast as possible with these. And it's like this is what a witch looks like, by the way. And it's like it looks like a servant, by the way. Um, right. So in, in 1487, this is like when it really takes off, is the Malleus Maleficarum uh, is published by a uh, Dominican friar. And that's called, the, that's in English, the Hammer of Witches. And that's banned by the Catholic Church. But at that time, the there's a number of like different Bibles being printed that are also being banned. And everyone's like, forget this. 
And and the problem with banning printed books is once in in late medieval Europe is to ban them you still have to buy them first, and that just pays for. Explain that a little bit. So this like the idea of printing wasn't was still was a foreign concept, especially for people in power. Mm-hmm. And so because the idea of like a book a folio text before that is it would be commissioned from someone. Uh, who's very valuable, who would buy it ahead of time for you to make it, and it would take 10 or whatever years right. to make. This is like the Shakespeare folios. Uh, before that. But okay. Yeah, but it's being written by hand. Oops. Right. It's being created by hand, and it takes quite a long time. And it's a it's a beautiful art piece object. Mm-hmm. It took a very long time for like the Catholic Church and for different leaders <laughs> to understand how to ban printed books because they would see them on the market, and they'd say, let's buy all these up and destroy them. Unfortunately, that just paid for the next printing. Yeah, so they were looking for their own version of the digital millennium copyright act. Yeah, they couldn't. They, there was no law to just like we need to get this off the market. They were right. just like, well, let's just buy it off the market. But unfortunately, you just paid for three hundred more copies. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so f- then so we'll go to like the fifteen hundreds, like, and they really start like getting massive. So like in Germany, which is like right after the Thirty Years' War, which is essentially demolished the Holy Roman Empire, like for any any one in three people are going to either die or be affected by the 30 years war and right after that in 1587 500 people were burned to death in a five-year period in to germany uh 1590 james VI of scotland got involved in the north berwick witch trials uh and he's famous because he would become james the first so he's the first monarch who was directly involved in witch trials and he wrote a book himself called demonology which is the history of demons uh, on earth and that was a primary source for Shakespeare's Macbeth. Can you imagine being around like in those times and reading shit like that? Yeah. And, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it'd be fascinating and exhilarating, but terrifying, terrifying. But so, so Shakespeare used this demonology book when he wrote Macbeth and the, the, they, we think now the chance that the weird sisters give uh-huh. are from that book. So he did it as a way to freak audiences out, being like, like double bubble toil and trouble. Yeah, those are real curses. So supposedly when people heard that, they like left the theater being That's like, what are you doing? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Shakespeare's a real one. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. a real dude. Um, so that's probably like the peak of, I should say Francis Bacon. I'm sure. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the peak probably of witch mania in Europe where there's a monarch of a major, um, nation like europe is writing books about demons and then they're writing plays quoting those uh uh books and this is right before puritans take over um so right in like 1600s like there's like legal and theological protests against witch trials where it's like this is like like people will show up in town like in friars will show up in towns or inquisitors and 500 people are going to die so it's like this is uh, absolutely absurd yeah. uh so as witch trials begin to fade because of this blowback in europe they really start taking off in america and nordic countries for some reason <laughs> and then the, there's what we covered the salem witch trials and the after that that's kind of the last big gasp and in 1735 so about 30 years after the salem witch trials there's the witchcraft act in england which is if you accuse anyone being of being a witch that's a crime now because they <laughs> have to like put a, um, they finally have to put a, a a stop to all this, and so the last witch to be killed in Europe was in 1782, which is uh, in Sweden, which is kind of insane to think about. There are witches that are killed in different parts of the world uh, today, 
Um, but for like the European kind of witch craze from about late 1300s to 1782, we think probably about 40,000 to 60,000 people were burned at the stake, executed in some way or the other. And it's probably about 90 to 95% uh, women. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, it's interesting. It's, it's good to remember that's like, especially when we, that quote, when we talked about like form and how the form changes, but the essence kind of stays the same over time. Like there's, it's important to note that like the, the Ur movement is some sort of like patriarchal hatred. Yeah. And I think the, um, the, the, the line between misogyny is very clear in all this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one work I didn't cite in this and I need to re-review, um, in the future, but I didn't for this because it's mainly focused on European witchcraft, but Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Frederici. Yeah. Sort of Marxist take on all this. And I think, I think actually her numbers are a bit, uh, higher and not, um, uh, in terms of the number of people killed. And yeah, that's a pretty, cons- I would say 60,000 is pretty conservative. But I think hers, I th- I've seen, uh, you know, critiques of it that she goes too high, but I think the fundamental point that this is a, uh, this was basically done in sort of a subconscious construction of a patriarchal uh, sort of, I guess, Western civilization or Christendom. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that women... Um, and you look at it with all the different signs of witchcraft, right? Like the broomstick. Uh, you're flying on a broomstick to different meetings mm-hmm. or, or pins. Like I'm being stuck with pins or... Uh, one of the famous witches in the early 1600s in Europe uh, uh, vomited pins, apparently. It was like a magic trick, basically. But um, it's definitely true that, like, you look... And, and then um, women were, if they had uh, miscarriages, mm-hmm. those... Um, w- they were accused of killing their children very often, which is, like, very... You look at um, the way America, uh, big chunks of America, want to cut down on abortion rights. Well... What you're going to ha- eventually happen then is you're going to be sh- looking uh, askance with a side eye at women who had miscarriages that weren't planned, right? Like, did they actually abort their kid? Um, that's going to be co- that's that's what's around the corner when you go towards a more um, anti-choice uh, world. Well, it's like that law in Georgia that's that said uh, 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 a miscarriage qualifies as manslaughter, right? Which to me, like, so you put the woman in jail like i don't see how that is in in function how that is that much different to what we're talking about yeah i mean it's it's less mystical perhaps yeah uh but it's the exact same impulse it's driven by the same motivations um, yeah uh and yeah i i think um you know caliban the witch you can find that pdf online if you want that but um uh yeah i mean it is a it's a horrifying period in American history. Well, there's yeah, there's something especially when you see it all back to back like that. There's something about there's, there's a horrible there's some sort of like turmoil that's happening in the culture at that moment, and there's some sort of id urge, patriarchal id urge to cleanse yourself of this problem, and so you have like the sacrificial lamb, which seems to be part of like culture from the beginning of the written word and it just so happens like well the sacrificial lamb is going to be the weakest among us or the one that we take advantage of the most and it's going to be these yeah. women of low station and that's what it just it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself for hundreds and hundreds of years yeah i mean and again just to bring up the depressed like i think it was sarah good maybe it was uh sarah osborne but one of them um where, where she was a beggar 
I think it was good, yeah, because uh, she begged with her daughter for your yeah. daughter Dorcas good, and uh, but she was in in earlier in life she was expecting a higher station and and things right. went wrong, and she would go around begging for people and then when she, whether she got what she wanted or whether she didn't she would mutter and it, it's implied that this is some sort of like Tourette's type uh, situation going on with her, and. It's I I I have been thinking every time I've seen somebody you know sleeping on the street, or you know opening doors asking for change in mm-hmm. like downtown Brooklyn, is the way we look at those people as we they are dehumanized. Yeah, and it's a what what in a Puritan context what is a dehumanized person but like a, you know a servant of the devil, mm-hmm. uh, and like and and she's she probably can't help the way she mutters. Yeah. And she's clearly going through some sort of like mental illness, uh, and I think that's a lot of this. A lot of this is, it's a it's a confluence of I think actual like adolescent psychopathy uh, among the accused accusers, uh, and actual like how they interpret like oh I'm twitching now. Yeah. Uh, I, I cl- they, you would, who is that but Satan, right? Like, mm-hmm. if God authors everything but the bad things, yeah. the author of this has to be Satan. Well, and then we also created a, a society that reflects the perfection of God's glory quite well. Mm-hmm. So, to see those, like, the the seams of that society being like, well, we either can restructure society to be more egalitarian, or we can get rid of what we assume are, are uh, problems within the society, and it's obvious what people choose what what men of power choose which is like well let's get rid of these people with less power that make me have to think about this yeah um so bit of a downer more it's more of a depressing than spooky i feel like when you actually <laughs> dig into this well i think that's the literary hangover ethos yeah which is like you know this thing that's spooky it's actually depressing it's actually just depressing yeah <laughs> yeah it's a it's a depressing story of empire yeah um <laughs> It's not. It's like ghosts and goblins, um, but uh, yeah, I I don't know if there's anything else in my notes that I wanted to get to. Um, oh, I just want to mention Phipps since we won't talk about him. Oh no, I did mention that he made his twenty million dollars uh, from ship. shipwreck. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, folks, uh, we are cruising along on literary hangover the youtube page is growing fast uh we'll be doing uh the crucible i think in the next few weeks hopefully uh and then some more things you know i gotta uh, actually i do want to recommend uh a netflix show called marianne Mm. Uh, my girlfriend and i have been watching it on net uh it's a french show it's in uh it's subtitled but it's a on witch on a witch yeah marianne um also hereditary is good too uh, people haven't checked yep, that out. Yep. Um, uh, I'm I'm down for witch. I want more witch stuff. I think this this Salem shit, the Salem uh, town versus Salem village, all, everything surrounding it. Sh- that it, I've thought this about pretty much everything we've researched on the show, but this should definitely be given an HBO miniseries treatment. Yeah, I'd watch ten solid episodes on you know the everything we've talked about today. It, I think it needs to happen because I think you understand a lot about the American experience when you look at this. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Alex, do you have anything else you want to mention? Yeah. If I can like put one more button on that is like, yeah, when reading about, cause I, you know, I knew about the outline of the Salem witch trials, but I don't think I could know the, like the fine, I wouldn't say I knew the finer details. Like definitely didn't know there were two Salem's <laughs> before right. we started researching, yeah. but doing the classic rural urban divide. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Thing, the specter that continues to haunt the American yeah. night, uh, uh, psyche, but, um, it's interesting when you think about the Salem, to me, it feels like a kind of a founding event of like the American story. And it's like, it's almost like there are two kinds of events in history. Ones that the people at the time are like, look what we did. Look, 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 like keep reading. And then there's like events that are just as important. That's like, don't do not look at this. Like it's not important. And it's, it's kind of like it calls just as much attention to it because. There's something like Salem is absolutely 100% in the popular culture, despite their best efforts. Yeah. And it's, it's every, like, if you look at like a cop car and like a, and in Salem, you'll see like a witch on it, which doesn't necessarily mean that the message went through, but at least the, the form is there. And there's something about like truth, truth will out like this, like as important as like the declaration of independence and the, and the, the war of independence is. To me, this is just as an important story to understanding 100%. America. Yeah. Like there are two foundings almost, like one in 1692 and one in 1776. Yeah, I, I would definitely uh, agree with that. Um, John Adams also, to tie those two things together, um, you know, in the uh, the John Adams miniseries, he's defending those British soldiers. Um, oh, yeah. Is, is, is that the um, Boston Massacre? Yep. Yeah, Adams had served uh, as defense attorney for the British soldiers. It had been an unpopular move, but the future president considered it his duty for a, quote, judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches anciently, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I think, an amazing, uh, you know, sign of memory uh, and, and how memory is lived by the people. A uh, hundred years after that, for the uh, 200 year anniversary of Salem, there's still enough people in Salem uh, town uh, and maybe Danvers. I'm, I'm not sure what, where this was localized, but they were against any kind of memorial. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like skepticism, like I think they were witches though. Yeah. Like, like, or, or like the common thing, which is like, uh, like we all know it was bad. You don't have to stick our eye. Yeah. In it. Ancient history. T- t- hey, look, we got to turn the page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Turn the page on the witches. We don't, yeah, get out of here, devils! We, look, these are nice Harvard folks. Yeah, many of them might be in my cabinet. <laughs> uh, they got some merchants there. Do some business. Um, uh, yeah, Alex, thank you so much for uh, your assistance on this uh, show today. Yeah, another good one. I think so. Um, and uh, folks, uh, become a patron. Just do it. Just do um, it. Yeah. Just do it now. Really do it right now. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're waiting for. We just gave you a bunch of free podcasts. So, uh, uh, until next time, um, bye bye. See ya.